Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. From Hollywood, California, Columbia presents William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, starring Edward G. Robinson with Frida Innescourt and Charles D. Brown. With tonight's all-star production of The Taming of the Shrew, the Columbia Network brings you the fourth in a cycle of eight Shakespearean plays to be presented at this same time each Monday night during the summer season of 1937. In these plays, each carefully adapted for a full hour's radio presentation, the world's finest actors join Columbia in making it possible for millions of people to enjoy the works of the world's greatest dramatist for the first time. This adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew was made by Gilbert Seldes, distinguished author, journalist, and dramatic critic. Starring in tonight's performance is Edward G. Robinson in the role of Petruchio, with Miss Frida Innescourt playing opposite him as Catherine. A brilliant supporting cast is headed by Charles D. Brown as Grumio, Lionel Pape as Baptista, Morris Ancrum as Curtis, Jack Smart as Biandello, Ernestine de Becker as Bianca. Victor Bay, Columbia's talented young conductor, raises his baton to lead the orchestra in the musical introduction. As the curtain rises, Conway Turrell, distinguished actor of stage and screen, comes forward as narrator to set the stage for the first scene of The Taming of the Shrew. The scene of this light-hearted pause is the Italian city of Padua, an open square with a fountain and round it spacious homes, an inn, a cathedral, and a flower market beside it. Out of a noble house at the corner of this square come five people. Mark them well, because they have much to do and say. First, the demure young Bianca, in a light blue silk, her light hair neatly parted, quiet as a mouse, sweet, and a little frightened by the trouble she has caused. The trouble follows. Two men who want to marry her. The dainty Hortensio but, sir, and the fat, elderly, pleasing Grêmio, shoving one another out of the way to crust around this honeypot, so, and themselves being shoved out of the way to make room for the most striking figure of them all, Catherine, the proud sister of Bianca, dark, handsome, and arrogant, a dark red gown sweeping after her as she strides into the square, and after her, expostulating and flustered, old Baptista, father of the girls, who tries to make peace in this angry gathering. Uh, now we can hear what Baptista has to say. Gentlemen, 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 importune me no further how I firmly am resolved you know that is not to bestow my youngest daughter before I have a husband for the elder. If either of you both love Katerina, because I know you well and love you well, leave shall you have to quarter at your pleasure. What say you, Gremio? To cart her, rather. She's too rough for me. I pray you, sir. Is it your will to make a sale of me amongst these mates? Mates, maid? How mean you that? 
No mates for you, unless you were of gentler, milder mold. But if it were, doubt not her care should be to comb your noddle with a three-legged stool and pinch your face and use you like a fool, Pat Hortensio. From all such devils, good Lord, deliver us. And me too, good Lord. Gentlemen, gentlemen, then I may soon make good what I have said. Bianca, I'll get you in. Oh, oh no. I let it not really? displease thee, good Bianca, for I love thee nevertheless, my girl. A pretty Pete. It is best put finger in the eye, and she knew why. Sister, content you in my discontent. Sir, to your pleasure humbly I subscribe. My books and instruments shall be my company, on them to look and practice by myself. Gentlemen, gentlemen, content ye, I am resolved. Go in, Bianca. And for I know she taketh most delight in music, instruments, and poetry, schoolmasters will I keep within me house fit to instruct her youth. If you, Hortensio, or Signor Gremio, you know any such, prefer them hither. And so farewell. Uh, farewell, farewell Catherine, you may stay, for I have more to commune with Bianca. Why? And I trust I may go too, may I not? What? Shall I be appointed ours, as though belike I knew not what to take and what to leave up? <laughs> They have gone away. Hortensio and Grimio have to postpone their rivalry for the hand of the gentle Bianca because her father has made it an absolute condition that the elder sister must be married first. So both rivals set out to find some man willing to marry Catherine the shrew. And here, as luck would have it, comes just the man. Yes, Petruchio is just the man. You can tell it by the way he swaggers down the street looking for Hortensio's house. You can tell it by the perch of his plumed hat at an angle over one impudent eye. An adventurous fellow out to seek his fortune, ready for anything, especially a tempestuous courtship. A beautiful girl and uh, a rich marriage. Behind him, his servant, Grumio, bends under the weight of his luggage. Petruchio halts. He has found Hortensio's house. I trow this is his house. Here, Sir Grumio, knock, I say. Knock, sir? Whom should I knock? Is there any man has rebused your worship? Well, then, I say, knock me here soundly. Knock you here, sir? Why, sir? What am I, sir, that I should knock you here, sir? Well, then, I say, knock me at this gate and wrap me well, or I'll knock your knave's pate. Oh, oh, help! <laughs> help, masters! Help! Now, knock when I bid you, sir, a villain. How now? What's the matter? Good Hortensio, I bade the rascal knock upon your gate and could not get him for my heart to do it. Knock at the gate? Oh, heaven, speak you not these words plain. Sirrah, knock me here, wrap me here, knock me well, knock me soundly, and come you now with knocking at the gate. Sirrah, be gone. Or talk not, I advise you. Petruchio, patience, I am (laughs) Grumio's pledge. And tell me now, sweet friend, what happy gale blows you to pad your hair from old Verona? Such wind as scatters young men through the world to seek their fortunes farther than at home. And I have thrust myself into this maze, happily to wive and thrive as best I may. Wife? <laughs> Petruchio, shall I then come roundly to thee and wish thee to a shrewd, ill-favored wife? What? <laughs> Thou'lt thank me but a little for my counsel. And yet I promise thee... She shall be rich. Senior Hortensio, twixt such friends as we, few words suffice. And therefore, if thou know one rich enough to be Petruchio's wife, 
be she as foul as was Florentia's love, as old as Sybil, and as cursed and shrewd as Socrates Antipi, or a worse, she moves me not, or not removes at least affection's edge in me, were she as rough as are these swelling Adriatic seas. I come to wipe it wealthily in Padua. If wealthily, then happily in Padua. Ah, Petruchio, since we have stepped thus far in, I will continue that I broached in jest. Eh? I can, Petruchio, help thee to a wife with wealth enough, and young and beauteous, brought up as best becomes a gentlewoman. Oh? Her only fault, and that is false enough, is that she is intolerable cursed, and shrewd and froward, so beyond all measure that were my state far worse than it is, I would not wed her for a mine of gold. Hortensio, peace. Thou knowest not gold's effect. Why came I hither but to that intent? Think you a little din can daunt mine ears? Have I not in my time heard lions roar? Have I not heard the sea puffed up with winds, rage like an angry boar, chafed with sweat? Have I not heard great ordnance in the field and heaven's artillery thunder in the skies? Have I not in a pitched battle heard loud larums, neighing steeds, and trumpets clang? And do you tell me of a woman's tongue <laughs> that gives not half so great a blow to the ear as will a chestnut in a farmer's fire? Oh, but... Uh... Oh, tush, tush. Fear boys with bugs. Tell me her father's name and tis enough. For I will board her, though she chide as loud as thunder when the clouds in autumn crack. <laughs> her father is Baptista Minola, an affable and courteous gentleman. Her name is Katharina Minola, renowned in Padua for her scolding tongue. I will not sleep, Hortensio, till I see her. Uh, tarry, Petruchio. I must go with thee, for in Baptista's keep my treasure is. He hath the jewel of my life in hold, oh. his youngest daughter. Beautiful Bianca. <laughs> and now shall my friend Petruchio do me grace and offer me, disguised in sober robes, to old Baptista as a schoolmaster well seen in music to instruct Bianca. But so I may, by this device, at least have leave and leisure to make love to her till Catherine the Cursed have got a husband. Come. Catherine the Cursed. <laughs> a title for a maid. <laughs> It's now late afternoon, and the suitors for Bianca's hand call on Baptista. Of the people who now approach, Baptista seems to know only the fat Gremio. But Gremio's rival Hortensio is also there, only he is now dressed as a poor musician with his lute like an odd-shaped violin. And another suitor has come into action, Lucentio, who pretends to be a teacher of Latin. And poor Gremio, who is too fat to disguise himself, has hired this Latin teacher to plead his cause with Bianca. And now, to clear the way by getting Catherine married off, they are bringing Petruchio to Father Baptista's house. A servant enters to announce their arrival. Signor Gremio. Gremio enters with the new suitor, Lucentio, disguised as a Latin teacher. Good morrow, neighbor Gremio. Uh, good morrow, neighbor Baptista. I freely give unto you this young scholar that hath long been studying at Reims, cunning in Greek, Latin, and other languages. His name is Cambio. Pray accept his service. A thousand thanks, Signor Gremio. Welcome, good Cambio. Signor Petruchio. Petruchio enters with Hortensio disguised as a music teacher. 
God save you, gentlemen. And you, good sir. Pray, have you not a daughter called Catherine, fair and virtuous? I, I have a daughter, sir, called Katerina. I am a gentleman of Verona, sir, that hearing of her beauty and her wit, her affability and bashful modesty, her wondrous qualities and mild behavior, am bold to show myself a forward guest within your house to make mine eye the witness of that report which I so oft have heard. Oh, and uh, for an inference to my entertainment, I do present you with a man of mine, cunning in music and the mathematics, to instruct her fully in those sciences whereof I know she's not ignorant. Accept of them or else you do me wrong. You're welcome, sir, and he for your good sake. But for my daughter Catherine, this I know, she's not for your turn, the more my grief... Oh, I see you do not mean to part with her, or else you like not of my company. Oh, nay, nay. oh mistake me not, I speak as I find. Whence are you, sir? What may I call your name? Petruchio is my name. Antonio's son, a man well known throughout all Italy. I know him well. You're welcome for his sake. Sir, uh, Senor, lead these gentlemen to my daughters and tell them both these are their tutors. And bid them use them well. Senior Petruchio, we will go walk a little in the orchard. Uh, Senor Baptista, my business ask of haste, and every day I cannot come to woo. You knew my father well, and in him me, who left uh, solely heir to all his lands and goods, which I have better rather than decreased. Then tell me, if I get your daughter's love, what dowry shall I have with her to wife? After my death, the one half of my lands, Aye. and in possession, 20,000 crowns. Aye. Let specialties be therefore drawn between us, that covenants may be kept on either hand. Aye. When the special thing is well obtained, that is her love. For that is all in all. Oh, 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 I, that is nothing. But I tell you, Father, I am as peremptory as she proud-minded. And where two raging fires meet together, they do consume the thing that feeds their fury. Though little fire grows great with little wind, yet extreme gusts will blow out fire and all. So I to her, and so she yields to me. For I am rough. And woo not like a babe. Well, mayest thou woo, and happy be thy speed. Senor, but be thou armed for some unhappy Senor, words. Senor. How now, good fiddler? Why dost thou look so pale? Oh, poor Hortensio. For fear, I promise you, if I look pale. What, will my daughter prove a good musician? I think she'll soon approve a soldier. Why, then thou canst not break it to the lute? Why, no. For she hath broke the lute to me. <laughs> I did but tell her she mistook her frets and bowed her hand to feature teach her fingering, yes. when with a most impatient, devilish spirit, frets call you these, quoth she, I'll fume with them. <laughs> and with that word, she struck me on the head. <laughs> now, by the world, tis a lusty wench. I love her ten times more than e'er I did. Oh, how I long to have some chat with her. Oh, Good master fiddler, go with me and be not so discomforted. Proceed in practice with my younger daughter. She's apt to learn and thankful for good terms. Senior Petruchio, will you go with us or shall I send my daughter Kate to you? I pray you do. I will attend her here and woo her with some spirit when she comes. Say that she rail. Why, then I'll tell her plain she sings as sweetly as a nightingale. Say that she frown. I'll say she looks as clear as morning roses newly washed with dew. Say she be mute and will not speak a word. Then I'll commend her volubility and say she uttereth piercing eloquence. If she do bid me pack, I'll give her thanks as though she bid me stay by her a week. If she deny to wed, 
I'll crave the day when I shall ask the bands and when be married. Ah, but here she comes. And now, Petruchio, speak. Sir? Good morrow, Kate. That's your name, I hear. Well, have you heard? But something hard of hearing. They call me Catherine, that do talk of me. Oh, you lie in faith. They are called plain Kate. And Bonnie Kate. And sometimes Kate the Curse. Oh, but Kate, the prettiest Kate in Christendom. Kate of Kate Hall, my super dainty Kate. But dainties are all Kates. And therefore, Kate, take this of me, Kate of my consolation. Hearing thy mildness praised in every town, thy virtue spoke of, and thy beauty sounded, yet not so deeply as to thee belongs, myself am moved to woo thee for my wife. Moved in good time. Let him that moved you hither remove you hence. I knew you at the first you were a movable. Why, what's a movable? A joint stool. Thou hast hit it. Come, sit on me. Asses are made to bear, and so are you. Women are made to bear, and so are you. Ah, far. Oh, Well, pain, and like a buzzer. Ah, come, come, you wasp. If I be waspish, best beware, my sting. My remedy is then to pluck it out. Hi, if the fool could find it where it lies. And so farewell. Hey, come again, good Kate. I am a gentleman. That I'll try. I swear I'll cuff you if you strike again. So may you lose your arms. If you strike me, you are no gentleman. Oh, nay, come, Kate, come. You must not look so sour. It is my fashion when I see a crab. Why, here's no crab, and therefore look not sour. There is, there is. Well, then show it me. Had I a glass, I would. What, you mean my face? Ha, we're aimed of such a young one. (laughs) Now, by St. George, I'm too young for you. Yet you are withered. Ah, tis with cares. I care not. Nay, hear you, Kate, in sooth, you escape not so. I chafe you if I tarry. Let me go. Oh, no, 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 not a whit. Why, I find you passing gentle. Which told me you were rough and coy and sullen. And now I find report a very liar, for thou art pleasant. Oh. Gamesome. Passing courteous, but slow in speech. Oh, oh yet sweet as springtime flowers. Why, thou canst not frown. Thou canst not look askance, nor bite the lip as angry when she's will. Nor hast thou pleasure to be cross and talk, but thou with mildness entertains thy wooers, with gentle comfort and soft and apple. Oh! Why does the world report that Kate doth live? Oh, slanderous world. Why, Kate, like the hazel twig is straight and slender, and as brown in hue as hazelnuts and sweeter than the kernels. Oh, let me see thee walk. Thou dost not halt. Where did you study all this goodly speech? Tis extempore from my mother wit. A witty mother, witless else her son. <laughs> Am I not wise? No. And therefore, uh, setting all this chat aside, thus in plain terms, your father hath consented that you shall be my wife. Oh. Your dowry agreed on. And will you nil you, I will marry you. So. Now, Kate, I am a husband for your turn. For by this light whereby I see thy beauty, mm, thy beauty that doth make me like thee well, thou must be married to no man but me. For I am he am born to tame you, Kate, and bring you from a wild Kate to a Kate conformable as other household cat, uh, Kate. <clears throat> oh, well, uh, here comes your father, an old gremio, but never make denial. I must and will have Catherine to my wife. Now, Signor Petruchio, how speed you with me, daughter? <laughs> how but well, sir, how but well. It were impossible I should speed amiss. Oh, why, how now, daughter Catherine, in your dump? Call you me daughter. Now I promise you, you have showed a tender fatherly regard to wish me wed to one half lunatic, a madcap ruffian and a swearing jack that thinks with oaths to face the matter out. Father, tis thus. 
yourself and all the world that talked of her have talked to me of her. If she be cursed as for policy, oh. for she's not froward, but modest as the dove. Oh. She's not hot, but temperate as the morn. Why, for patience she will prove a second Griselle, and Roman Lucrece for her chastity. Oh. And to conclude, we've agreed so well together that upon Sunday is the wedding day. I'll see thee hanged on Sunday first. Oh. <laughs> you. she says she'll see thee hanged Oh, first. be patient, gentlemen, I choose her for myself. If she and I be pleased, what's that to you? There's bargain twixt us twain, being alone, that ye shall still be cursed in company. Oh, I tell you, it is incredible to believe how much she loved me. Oh, the kindest, Kate. Kind? She hung about my neck and kiss on kiss. Kiss? Mm. She vied so fast, protesting oath on oath, oh, that oh. in a twink she won me to her love. Love, love, love. Here, oh. here, give me thy hand, Kate. Oh. I will undo Venice to buy apparel against the wedding day. Provide the feast, father, and bid the guests. I will be sure my Catherine shall be fine. I know not what to say, but give me your hands. God send you joy, Petruchio. She's a match. Amen, say we. We will be witnesses. Father and wife and gentlemen, adieu. I will to Venice. Sunday comes apace. We will have rings and things and fine array. Oh, and kiss me, Kate. We'll be married on Sunday. Oh! <laughs> so, Petruchio and Catherine have set the foundations for a perfect marriage. They've insulted one another to the best of their ability. She has slapped him, and he has driven her speechless with fury. And if this be love, it certainly wears a strange disguise. Yet, disguise or not, it seems to lead to the altar. At least they are here in front of the grandest church in Padua, and a crowd of neighbors and passers-by are beginning to wonder why old Father Baptista is dressed in his best black, and why Catherine, in all her bridal finery, is so furious, and why Bianca looks like the prettiest bridesmaid in all the history of Padua, and why all those other people on the steps of the church are standing and fretting. But the reason is clear. Everyone is ready for the wedding with a single exception. There is no bridegroom. The dashing Petruchio, who went off to Venice promising to return, is nowhere in sight. Signor Lucentio, this is the pointed day that Catherine and Petruchio should be married, and yet we hear not of our son-in-law. What will be said? What mockery will it be to want the bridegroom where the priest attends? No shame but mine. I must forsooth be forced to give my hand, opposed against my heart. Unto a mad brain roods me, full of spleen, who wooed in haste and means to wed at leisure. I told you, I, he was a frantic fool. He'll woo a thousand, point the day of marriage, make feasts, invite friends, and proclaim the bands, yet never means to wed where he has wooed. Oh, now must the world point at poor Catherine and say, Lo, there is mad Petruchio's wife. If it would please him, come and marry her. Oh, would Catherine had never seen him. Master, Master. Master. Dear what news? News, old news, and such news you have never heard of. Is Petruchio come? Why, no, sir. Well, then, he is coming. Well, well. Petruchio is coming in a new hat and an old jerkin. A pair of old breeches thrice turned. A pair of boots that have been candle cases. One buckled, another laced. 
an old rusty sword taken out of the town armory with two broken points. His horse hit with an old motley saddle and stirrups of no kindred. Besides, possessed with a glanders, troubled with a lampers, infected with a fashions, full of wind balls, dead with spavins, frayed with the yellows, past pure of the hives, stalks spoiled with the staggers, and shoulder shot. Well, spare me the rest and tell me who comes with him. Oh, sir, his lackey, Grumio. For all the world, comparison like the horse. With a linen stock on one leg and a cursy boot hose on the other. Gartered with a red and blue list, an old hat, and the humor of forty fancies picked him for a feather. A monster, a very monster in apparel, and not like a Christian good boy or a gentleman's lackey. Well, I'm glad he's come howsoever he comes. Home here. You're welcome, Patricio. Where is Kate? Where's my lovely bride? Aye, where's our lovely bride? Uh, hey, how does my father? Gentles, methinks you frown. And wherefore gaze this goodly company as if they saw some wondrous monument? Aye. Some comet or unusual prodigy? Aye, prodigy. Why, sir? <laughs> you know, this is your wedding day. First we were sad, fearing you would not come... Now, sadder that you've come so unprovided, fight doth this habit. Shame to your estate, and I saw to our solemn festival. To me she's married, not unto my clothes. No. But where is Kate? Aye, where is Kate? I stay too long from her. The morning wears. Tis time we were at church. Aye, time we where were at church. Hey, where's A mad ride, Gilma! <laughs> See, the church door is open. Dad's coming out! On the steps of the church, Petruchio stops with his bride on his arm and bows to the crowd. They see Catherine not blushing as a bride, but flushed with the humiliation which Petruchio has brought upon her. For there she is, dazzling in lace and white satin, and there he is, <laughs> shabby and tattered and out at elbows, a man who deliberately dressed himself like a scarecrow for his wedding day. And yet Petruchio seems unconscious that he has made a spectacle of himself, he seems rather pleased and debonair. Without a doubt, he intends to appear at the, the wedding feast in these same clothes, the great banquet of which all the friends of the family are coming, and at which he and his bride will be the ill-assorted guests of honor, according to the unalterable custom of the country. Gentlemen and friends, I thank you for your pay. I know you think to dine with me today and have prepared great store of wedding cheer. But so it is, my haste that call me hence, and therefore here I mean to take my leave. Oh! It's possible you will be away tonight? I must away today before night comes. What? Make it no wonder. If you knew my business, you would entreat me rather golden stay. And honest company, I thank you all that have beheld me give away myself to this most patient, 
sweet and virtuous wife. <laughs> Dine with my father. Drink a health to me, for I must hence. And farewell to you all. Let us entreat you, stay till after dinner. Hortensio, it may not be. Let me entreat you. Gremio, it cannot be. Let me entreat you. Catherine, I am content. Are you content to stay? I am content you shall entreat me stay. Oh. But yet not stay. Entreat me how you can. Oh, now, if you love me, stay. Romeo, my horses. Aye, sir, they be ready. The oaks have eaten the horses. Nay, then, do what thou canst. I will not go today. No, nor tomorrow. Not till I please myself. Oh, Kate, content thee. Prithee, be not angry. I will be angry. What hast thou to do? Doctor, doctor. Oh, father, be quiet. You shall stay my leisure. Gentlemen. Forward to the bridal dinner. I see a woman may be made a fool if she had not a spirit to resist. They shall go forward, Kate, at thy command. Obey the bride, you that attend on her. Go to the feast, revel and domineer. Be mad and merry, or go hang yourself. That's for my bonny Kate. Ha <laughs> ha, she must with me. No! Nay, look not big, nor stamp, nor stare, nor fret. I will be master of what is mine own. Why, she's my goods, my chattels. She's my house, my household stuff, my field, my barn, my horse, my ox, my ass, my, my anything. And here she stands, touch her whoever dare. I'll bring my action on the proudest he that stops my way in Padua. Truccio! Rumio! Draw forth thy weapon. We are beset with thieves. Rescue thy mistress, and I'll be a man. Oh, fear not, sweet wench. They shall not touch thee, Kate. I'll buckler thee against a million. just heard the first part of Columbia's presentation of The Taming of the Shrew, starring Edward G. Robinson with Frida Innescourt and Charles D. Brown, Lionel Pape, Jack Smart, Morris Ancrum, and Ernestine DeBecker. The play will continue in just a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. continue with the second part of The Taming of the Shrew. Our all-star cast is headed by Edward G. Robinson as Petruchio, Frida Innescourt as Catherine, Charles D. Brown as Grumio, Lionel Pape as Baptista, Jack Smart as Biondello, Morris Ancrum as Curtis, and Ernestine de Becker as Bianca. Conway Turl as narrator again comes forward to set the scene. <laughs> Catherine's honeymoon begins when she is dragged off to Petruchio's home in the, in the country. But not to a noble hall richly hung with tapestries and with logs roaring in the fireplaces. Oh, no. The taming of Catherine the Shrew is to begin in a mean, cold hallway, bare and grim, in which the servants cluster together, their teeth chattering as they wait for the coming of their master. The servant Grumio, who has ridden on ahead, enters the door, half frozen from his long journey. Uh, wife, 
spy on all tired jades and all mad masters and all foul ways. Was ever a man so beaten? Was ever a man so raid? Was ever a man so weary? Hola! Ho! Curtis! Who is it that calls so coldly? A piece of ice. If thou doubt it, thou mayest slide from my shoulder to my heel with no greater a run but my head and my neck. Eh, a fire, good Curtis. Is my master and his wife come, Grumio? Oh, aye, Curtis, aye, and therefore fire, fire, cast on no water. Is she so hot a shrew as she's reported? She was, good Curtis, before this frost. But thou knowest winter tames man, woman, and beast. But wilt thou make a fire, or shall I complain on thee to our mistress, whose hand thou shalt soon feel to thy cold comfort? I prithee, good Grumio, tell me, how goes the world? Well, a cold world, Curtis, in every office but thine. And therefore, fire, do thy duty and have thy duty. For my master and mistress are almost frozen to death. Oh, there's fire ready. Therefore, good Grumio, the news. Uh, uh, I have caught extreme cold. Hey, where's the cook? Is supper ready? The house trimmed? Rushes strewed? Cobwebs swept? The serving men in their new fustian? Their white stockings? And every officer his wedding garment on? Be the jacks fair within? The jills fair without? The carpets laid and everything in order? Already. And therefore, I pray ye, news. Well, first, no, my horse is tired. My master and mistress fallen out. How? Out of their saddles into the dirt, and thereby hangs a tail. Let's, let's have it, good Grumio. Well, we came down a foul hill, my master riding behind my mistress. Both are one horse? What's that to thee? Why, a horse. Tell thou the tale. Nay. Tell thou the tale. Good Grumio. But. Hadst thou not crossed me, thou shouldst have heard how her horse fell, and she under her horse. Thou shouldst have heard in how miry a place, how she was bemoiled, how he left her with the horse upon her, how he beat me because her horse stumbled, how she waded through the dirt to pluck him off me, how he swore, how she prayed that never prayed before, how I cried, how the horses ran away, how her bridle was burst, how I lost my crupper, and with many things of worthy memory, which now shall die in oblivion, and thou return unexperienced to thy grave. <laughs> By this reckoning, he is more a shrew than she. Aye, and that thou and the proudest of you shall find when he comes home. Eh, but what talk I of this? Come, come, call forth Nathaniel, Joseph, Nicholas, Philip, Walter, Sugarsop, and the rest. Let their heads be sleekly combed, their blue coats brushed, and their garters of an indifferent knit. Let them curtsy with their left legs and not presume to touch a hair of me master's horse tail till they kiss their hands. Are they ready? They are. Then call them forth. Oh, you hear? Oh! Welcome home, Welcome you. How now? How now? What? You? How now? You? Yeah. And thus much for greeting. Yes. Well, now is all ready and all things neat? All things is ready. How near is our master? In at hand, delighted by this, and therefore be not... No. Where be these names? Silence, I hear me, master. What? No man at door to hold my stirrup or take my horse? Nathaniel! Here, here, sir! Gregory! Here, sir! 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 Here
What? No attendance? No regard? No duty? Where's the foolish knave I sent before? Here, sir. As foolish as I was before. You peasant swain! Ow! You moth horse drudge! Oh! Did I not bid thee meet me in the park and bring along these rascal knaves with thee? Aye, sir. Go and fetch my supper. Aye, sir. Oh, where's the life that late I led? Where are... Oh, sit down, Kate. Sit down and welcome. Food, 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 food. Where's the... Oh, nay, good sweet Kate. Be merry. Here, off with my books, you rogues, you villains, when? Yes, sir, yes, sir. The prior of all this crazy fourth walk. Out, you rogue, you plucked my foot awry. Here, take that. And mend the plucking off the other. Oh, oh, come here, here. Be merry, Kate. Some water here. What ho? Where's my spaniel, Troilus? Troilus, where are my slippers? Shall I have some water? Uh, here, sir. Uh, here, sir. Uh, here, sir. Uh, here, come, come, Kate. Come and wash and welcome heartily. Villain, uh. <laughs> will you let it fall? Oh, patience, I pray you. Oh. The fall's unwilling. Oh, beetle-headed, flap-eared knave. Oh. Come, come, Kate, sit down. I know you have a stomach. Oh. Uh, will you give thanks, sweet Kate, or else shall I? What's this? Mutton? Aye. Who brought it? Aye, sir. It's burned. And so is all the meat. Nay, good Petruchio. What dogs are these? Where's the rascal cook? How durst you villains bring it from the dresser and serve it thus to me that love it not? There, take it to you. Frenchers, cups and all. You heedless jolt-heads and unmannered slaves. What? Do you grumble? I'll be with you straight. I pray you, husband, be not so disquiet. The meat was well, if you were so contented. I tell thee, Kate, it was burnt and dried away. And I expressly have a bit to touch it. For it engenders choler, planteth anger. And better it were that both of us that fast, since of ourselves, ourselves are choleric, than feed it with such over-roasted flesh. Oh, be patient. Tomorrow it shall be mended. And for this night we'll fast for company. Come, I will bring thee to thy bridal chamber. Oh! <laughs> Come! Oh. Come! Peter, uh, Peter, didn't ever see the like? <laughs> he kills her in her own humor. Where is he? In her chamber, Grumio, making a sermon of continency to her. <laughs> and rails and swears and rates that she, poor soul, knows not which way to stand, to look, to... Away, away, for he is coming hither. Where's the light that late I let? Where of all the... Thus have I politically begun my reign, and tis my hope to end successfully. She'd know me today, nor none shall eat. Last night she slept not, nor tonight she shall not. As uh, with a meat, some undeserved fault I'll find about the uh, making of the bed. And here I'll fling the pillow, there the bolster, <laughs> this way the coverlet, another way the sheets. I, and amid this hurley, I intend that all is done in reverent care of her. And in conclusion, she shall watch all night. And if she chance to not, I'll rail and brawl and with a clamor keep her still awake. <laughs> this is a way to kill a wife with kindness. And thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humor... He that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let him speak. 
night of turmoil and the shouting. Another morning of the same clamor, and all on an empty stomach is too much for Catherine. At lunch the next day, she conquers her pride and goes humbly to find Grumio in the dining hall. But Grumio is sly. He has received his instructions from Petruchio and takes as much pleasure in, as his master in teasing and torturing his mistress. No, no, forsooth, I dare not for my life. The more my wrong, the more his spite appears. What, did he marry me to famish me? I'm starved for meat, giddy for lack of sleep, with oaths kept waking and with brawling fed. And that which spites me more than all these wants, he does it under name of perfect love. As who should say, if I should sleep or eat, to a deadly sickness or else present death. Oh, I prithee, go and get me some repast. I care not what, so it be wholesome food. Mm. Well, uh, what say you to a neat's foot? Oh, it is passing good. I prithee, let me have it. Mm, I fear it is too choleric meat. Uh, what say you to a fat tripe, finely broiled? Oh, I like it well. Good, Romeo, fetch it me. Uh, I cannot tell. I fear it is choleric. But uh, what say you to a piece of beef and mustard? A dish that I do love to feed upon. Aye, uh, but the mustard is too hot a little. Well, why then the beef, and let the mustard rest? Nay, then I will not. You shall have the mustard, or else you get no beef of Grumio. Then both, or one, or anything thou wilt. Why then, the mustard without the beef. Oh, I... go, get me gone! <laughs> Sorrow on me, and all the back I... of you that try and oh. pass upon my misery. Go, get me gone, I say! Hey, Where's my cake? What, sweeting, all a mort? Oh, faith as cold as can be. Oh, pluck up thy spirits, look cheerfully upon me. Here, love, thou seest how diligent I am to dress thy meat myself and bring it thee. I'm sure, sweet Kate, this kindness merits thanks. I what, think... not a word? Nay, then, thou lovest it not, and all my pains are sorted to no proof. Here, take away this dish. I pray you, let it stand. Ah, the poorest service is repaid with thanks, and so shall mine before you touch the meat. I thank you, sir. <laughs> Kate, eat apace. And now, my honey love, will we return into thy father's house and revel it as bravely as the best. What, is thou dying? Oh. Here, take away the station. Aye, sir. Senior, the tailor stays your leisure. Ah, Kate, to deck thy body with his ruffling treasures. Come, tailor, let us see these ornaments. Play forth the gown. Here is the cap your worship did bespeak. Ah. Why? This was molded on a porringer, a velvet dish. Fie, fie, it is lewd and filthy. Fire, Why, fire. it is a cockle or a walnut shell, a knack, a toy, a, a trick, a baby's cap. Oh, away with it. Come, let me have a bigger. I'll have no bigger. This doth fit the time. And gentlewomen wear such caps as these. Oh, when you are gentle, you shall have one too, and not till then. Why, sir, I trust I may have leave to speak, and speak I will. I am no child, no babe. Your betters have endured me, say my mind, and if you cannot, best you stop your ears. My tongue will tell the anger of my heart, or else my heart concealing it will break. And rather than it shall, I will be free, even to the uttermost, as I please in words. Why, thou sayest true. It is a paltry cap, a custard coffin, a bauble, a silken pie. I love thee well, and doth thou likest it not? Love me or love me not. I like the cap, and if I will have her, I will have none. She will have none. <gasps> Thy gown. Come, Taylor, let us see it. Here, sir. Oh, mercy God. What masking stuff is here? What's this? A sleeve? Aye, sir. Why, it is like a demi-cannon. <laughs> what? Up and down, carved like an apple tod? Sire. Why, here, snip and nip and cut and slish and slash like, uh, like to a censer in a barber shop. 
Why, what in the devil's name, Taylor, cost thou this? You b- b- bid me make it orderly and well, uh, according to the f- fashion and the time. Marianne did, but if you be remembered, I didn't bid you mar it to the time. I never saw a better fashioned gown. More quaint, more pleasing, nor more commendable. Like you mean to make a puppet of me. Why, true, he means to make a puppet of me. She says your worship means to make a puppet of her. Oh, monstrous arrogance. Thou liest, thou thread, thou thimble, thou yard, three quarters, half yard, quarter, nails. Thou flee, thou knit, thou winter cricket, thou braved in mine own house with a skein of thread. Away, thou rag, thou quantity, thou remnant, or I shall so be meet thee with thy yard as thou shalt think on prating whilst thou livest. I tell thee I that thou hast marred her gown. Your worship is deceived. The gown is made just as my master had this direction. Grumio gave order how it should be done. So, Grumio, I I gave him no order. I gave him the stuff. But how did you desire it should be made? How, how? Marry, sir, with needle and thread. But did you you not request to have it cut? Cut? I say unto thee, I bid thy master cut out the gown. But I did not bid him cut it to pieces. Not to pieces? Ergo, thou liest. Why, why, here is the the note of the fashion to testify. Uh, Read it. Read it. The note lies in his throat if he says I said so. Imprimus, a loose-bodied gown. So, master, if ever I said loose-bodied gown, sew me in the skirts of it and beat me to death with a bottom of brown thread. I said a gown. Uh, Proceed. With a small compass cape. I I confess the cape. Uh, With a trunk sleeve. I confess two sleeves. Sleeves curiously cut. Ah, there's the villainy. Aye, there's the villainy. Curiously cut. I commanded the sleeve should be cut out and sewed up again. And I had thee in a place where thou shouldst know it. Oh, well, sir, in brief, thy gown is not for me. Go take it up into thy master's use. Oh, but stay, Petruchio. Oh, uh, Taylor, I'll pay thee for thy gown tomorrow. Thank thee, sire. Come, my Kate. We will unto your fathers, even in these honest, mean habiliments. Our purses shall be proud, our garments poor. For it is the mind that makes the body rich. What, is the jay more precious than the lark because his feathers are more beautiful? <laughs> oh, no, good Kate. We will henceforth with to feast and sport us to thy father's house. Oh, oh uh, Grumio. Aye, sir. Go call my men. Let us straight to him. Aye, sir. Let's see. I think it is now some uh, seven o'clock. And well, we may come there by dinner time. I dare assure you, sir, it is almost two. And it will be supper time ere you come there. It shall be seven ere I go to horse. Look, what I speak or do or think to do, you are still crossing it. It shall be one o'clock. I say it. <laughs> Lord, how bright and goodly shines the moon. The moon? The sun? It is not moonlight now. I say it is the moon that shines so bright. I know it is the sun that shines so bright. Now, by my mother's son, it shall be moon or star or what I list or ere I journey to your father's house. Go on, fetch our horses back again. Ever more crossed and crossed. Nothing but crossed. Forward, I pray, since we have come so far. And be it moon or sun or what you please. And if you please to call it a rush candle, henceforth I vow it shall be so for me. I say it is the moon. I know it is the moon. Nay, then you lie. It is the blessed sun. Then God be blessed. It is the blessed sun. But sun it is not when you say it is not. And the moon changes even as your mind. What you will have it named, even that it is. 
And so it shall be so for Catherine. Well, forward. Forward. As they ride on along their dusty way in the bright, clear Italian sun, they perceive a traveler coming along a side road. And at once a wild light leaps into Petruchio's eyes, and he spurs the horses forward so that they will meet at the crossroads. You wonder to what purpose of bedeviling Catherine he would put this innocent fellow traveler, who seems, as he rides, a substantial citizen, an elderly man of some position in the world, a great merchant, perhaps, or a dignitary of state, but certainly a great gentleman. Tomorrow, gentle mistress, where away? Sir, tell me, sweet Kate, and tell me truly now, hast thou beheld a fresher gentlewoman? Sweet Kate, embrace her for her beauty's sake. Sir? Young, budding virgin, fair and fresh and sweet. Whither away or where is thy abode? Madam! Why, how now, Kate? I hope thou art not mad. Why, this is a man. Old, wrinkled, faded, withered, and not a maiden, as thou sayest he is. Oh, pardon, old father, my mistaking eyes that have been so bedazzled with the, uh... uh, Son. Uh, son. Son. Now I perceive thou art a reverend father. Pardon, I pray thee for my mad mistaking. Uh, do, good old grandsire, and withal make known which way thou travelest. If along with us, we shall be joyful of thy company. Uh, fair sir, and you, my merry mistress, that with your strange encounter much amaze me. My name is called Vincentio, my dwelling Pisa, and uh, bound am I to Padua, there to visit a son of mine which long I have not seen. What is his name? Uh, Lucentio, gentle sir. Oh. So this gentleman met on the road is the father of Lucentio, that pretended Latin master who is now the husband of Bianca. And now we see the strands of this masquerade pulled closer together. Now our travelers are in the streets of the city, right in front of Catherine's old home. We know that Catherine obeys her husband. But has her spirit been really tamed? <laughs> I wonder. Husband, why wait we here? Shall we not go in? First, kiss me, Kate, and we will. What? In the midst of the street? What, are thou ashamed of me? Oh, no, sir, God forbid, but ashamed to kiss. Why, then, let's home again. Come, sir, let's away. Well, nay, I will give thee a kiss. Mm. Ah, now, pray thee, love, stay. <laughs> ah, it's not this well, Catherine. Come, my sweet Kate. Better once than never, for never too late. The feast which was postponed on Petruchio's wedding day has now taken place. A triple festival for three marriages. Petruchio and Catherine, Lucentio and the pretty Bianca, and even Hortensio, one of the disappointed suitors, has consoled himself with the most ungallant promptness by marrying a wealthy widow. Only the other studio, the, we the wheezing Grimio, reconciled himself to being perpetually a bachelor. It is a cheerful moment when men, having eaten and drunk together, are prone to make bets about the superior virtues of the wives whom they have honored with marriage. The virtue they are discussing now is obedience, and Petruchio has not yet convinced the others that he has actually tamed the shrew. Least of all has he convinced the father of the shrew. Now, in good sadness, son Petruchio, I think thou hast the very assure of all. Well, I say no. Let's each one send unto his wife. And he whose wife is most obedient, come at first when he doth send for her, shall win the wager which we will propose. Content. What is the wager? Twenty crowns. Twenty oh, crowns? Why, I'll venture so much of my hawk, a hound, 
for 20 times so much upon my wife. A hundred, then. Consent. A match is done. That's Who it. shall begin? That will I. Grumio, go bid Mistress Bianca come to me. I go. Son, I'll be your half, Bianca comes. I'll have no halves. I'll bear it all myself. Sir. How now? What news? Sir, your mistress sends you word that she is busy and cannot come. How? She's busy and she cannot come? <laughs> is that an answer? I and a kind one, too. Great God, sir, your wife sent you not a worse. I hope a better. Now you, Hortensio. Grumio, go and entreat my wife to come to me forthwith. Hortensio, <laughs> entreat her. Nay, then she must needs come. I am afraid, sir. Do what you can. Yours will not be entreated. Now, where's my wife? She says you have some goodly jest in hand. She will not come. She bids you come to her. Oh, worse and worse, you will not come. Oh, vile, intolerable, not to be endured. Sara Grumio, go to your mistress. Say I command her to come to me. I, I know her answer. What? She will not. The foul of fortune mine, and there an end. Now, buy me, Holidame. Here comes Katerina. What is your will, sir, that you send for me? Where's your sister and Hortensio's wife? They sit conferring by the parlor fire. Well, go, fetch them hither. If they deny to come, swinge me them soundly forth unto their husbands. Away, I say, and bring them hither straight. Here is a wonder, if you talk of a wonder... And so it is. I wonder what it bodes. Mary, peace it bodes, and love, and quiet life, and awful rule, and right supremacy, and to be short what not that's sweet and happy. Now, fair befall thee, good Petruchio. The wager thou hast won, and I will add unto their losses twenty thousand crowns. Another dowry to another daughter, for she's changed as though she'd never been. Nay, father, I will win my wager better yet, and show more sign of her obedience. Her new-built virtue and obedience. See where she comes and brings your froward wives as prisoners to her womenly persuasion. My lord. Catherine, that cap of yours becomes you not. Off with that bauble. Throw it underfoot. Lord, let me never have a cause to sigh till I be brought to such a silly pass. Hi, what a foolish duty call you did. I would your duty were as foolish, too. The wisdom of your duty, fair Bianca, hath cost me an hundred crowns in supper time. The more fool you for lying on my duty. <laughs> Catherine, I charge thee, tell these headstrong women what duty they do owe their lords and husbands. Come, come, you're mocking. We'll have no telling. Come on, I say, and first begin with Hortensio's wife. She shall not. I say she shall, and first begin with her. Fie, fie. Unknit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper. <laughs> Bravo! Thy head, thy Bravo. One that cares for thee and for thy maintenance, commits his body to painful labor both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, whilst thou liest warm at home, 
secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when she is flowered, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, what is she but a foul contending rebel and graceless traitor to her loving lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple. Where they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. But why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts? Oh, come, come, you froward and unable worms. My mind hath been as big as one of yours. <laughs> my heart is great, my reason happily more. To bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws. Our strength as weak. Our weakness past compare. Then place your hands below your husband's foot. In token of which duty, if he please. My hand is ready. May it do him ease. <laughs> Why, there's a wench. Come on and kiss me, Kate. you hear is coming from Columbia's Music Box Theater in Hollywood. The curtain has just fallen on the final scene of The Taming of the Shrew, and the audience is voicing its approval of the sterling performances they have just witnessed. Starred in this production was Edward G. Robinson as Petruchio. With him was Miss Frida Innescourt as Catherine, Charles D. Brown as Grumio, Lionel Pape as Baptista, Morris Ancrum as Curtis, Jack Smart as Biondello by courtesy of Universal Pictures, Ernestine De Becker as Bianca, and Conway Turrell as the narrator. The Taming of the Shrew was adapted for radio by Gilbert Seldes, the orchestra was conducted by Victor Bay, and the play was directed by Brewster Morgan. Next week, Columbia presents William Shakespeare's tragedy of King Lear, one of the most stirring and powerful dramas in the English language. King Lear will be played by Thomas Mitchell, the same Broadway star who gave a memorable performance as Brutus in Columbia's production of Julius Caesar. Cordelia, daughter of King Lear, will be played by Margot. The play was especially adapted for radio by Archibald MacLeish, America's Pulitzer Prize poet and author of The Fall of the City, one of radio's outstanding dramas. Remember the date, next Monday night, same time, same stations. Thomas Mitchell and Margot with a stellar supporting cast in Columbia's production of King Lear. 
Mr. Robinson appeared tonight through the courtesy of Warner Brothers Pictures Incorporated and is about to begin his new picture, Let Me Live, for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Miss Innescourt is starting work on her new picture, Portia on Trial, for Republic Studios. This has been another presentation of the Columbia Broadcasting System. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you... Richard Widmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite proudly presents part one of the first radio dramatization of William Shakespeare's tragic history of love and death, Othello. Our stars, Richard Widmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis. this great electing system of yours? Oh, you mean the Autolite electrical system that's designed to work as a perfect team. The generator, starting motor, distributor, and coil, spark plugs, battery, and all the other units are related by Autolite engineering design and manufacturing skill to give you the smoothest performance money can buy. Can it get me re-elected, Harlow? Senator, with an Autolite electrical system, you just can't lose. It starts the instant you turn the starting switch and works every second your engine runs. It works, too, every time you blow the horn, turn on lights, radio, heater, or electric windshield wiper. Sounds mighty important. It sure is, and that's why it pays to treat the electrical system of your car to a periodic checkup at your car dealer or your nearest authorized Autolite service station. To locate him, look in the classified section of the phone book under Automobile Electrical Service. Or call Western Union by number and ask for Operator 25. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite presents transcribed part one of William Shakespeare's Othello, starring Richard Widmark as the Argo, and Kathy Lewis as Desdemona, and Elliot Lewis as the Moor, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. Scene one, Venice, a street. Enter Rodrigo and Iago. You told me you hated the Moor. Despise me if I do not. I know my price, Rodrigo. I am worth no worse a place. But, says he, I have already chosen my officer. And what was he? Forsooth one Michael Cassio of Florentine. He in good time must his lieutenant be, and I, God bless the mark. His worship's ensign. I would not follow him, then, good Iago. Oh, sir, content you. I follow him to serve my turn upon him. We cannot all be masters, nor all masters cannot be truly followed. In following him, I follow but myself. Call up her father. Rouse him. Make after him. Poison his delight. What ho, Barancio! Signor Barancio, ho! Look to your house, your daughter, and your bag. Thieves! Thieves! What is the reason of this terrible summons? 
What is the matter there? Senor, it's all your family within. Are all souls locked? What have you lost your wit? Most reverend, senor. Do you know my boy? Not I. What are you? My name is Rodrigo. Oh, work welcome. I have charged you not to haunt about my door. In honest plainness, you heard me say my daughter is not for you. Sir, I beseech you that your fair daughter, Desdemona, to the gross class of a lascivious Moore has said, say, satisfy yourself. If she be in her chamber or your house, let loose on me the justice of the state for this delusion. Strike on the tinder hole. Give me a taper. Call up all my people. Like I say, like. Farewell, Rodrigo, for I must leave you. It seems not neat nor wholesome to my place to be produced against the Moor. Lead to the arsenal, the raised search, and there will I be with him. So farewell. Scene two, outside the arsenal, a few moments later, enter Othello, Iago, and attendants with torches. It's better as it is. But I pray, say, are you fast married? For be sure of this, that Signor Babancio is much beloved and hath in his effect a voice potential as double as the Duke's. He will divorce you. Let him do his spite. My loyal services shall outcome his complaints. For no Iago, but that I love the gentle Desdemona. But look, what lights come yonder? These are the raised father and his friends. You were best go in. Oh, not I, I must be found. Is it they? By Janus, I think no. The servants of the Duke and my Lieutenant Cassio. The goodness of the night upon you, friends. What is the news, Cassio? The Duke does greet you, General, and he requires your haste post-haste appearance even on the instant. What's the matter, thank you? Something from Cyprus, as I may divine. You've been hotly called for. Tis well, I'm found by you. Come, Captain, will you go? Have with you. Here comes another troop to seek for you. It is the Bancio, General. Be advised. He comes to bad intent. Tola, stand there. Senor, it is the Moor. Stand down with him. Thief! Keep up your bright sword for the jewel, Rustam. Owl thief. Where hast thou stowed my daughter? I'll have disputed on. Where will you that I go to answer this your charge? To prison. What if I do obey? How may the Duke be therewith satisfied whose messengers are here about my side upon some present business of the state to bear me to him? The Duke in council and this time of the night? Bring him away. Mine's not an idle cause. The Duke himself cannot but feel this wrong as for his own. Scene three, a council chamber. The Duke and Senator sitting at a table with lights. Valiant Othello. We must straight employ you against the general enemy Ottoman. I did not see you. Welcome, Signor Brabantio. We lacked your counsel and your help tonight. So did I yours. Good your grace, pardon me. Neither my place nor aught I heard of business has raised me from my bed, for my particular grief is of so floodgate and overbearing nature that it engluts and swallows other sorrows. Why? What's the matter? My daughter. Oh, my daughter. Dead? Aye, to me. She is abused, stolen from me, and corrupted by spells and medicines. But of Montepanks, here is the man, this Moor, whom now it seems your special mandate for the state affairs has hit abroad. Othello, what in your own part can you say to this? I do beseech you, send for the lady, and let her speak of me before her father. If you do find me foul in her report, let your sentence even fall upon my life. Fetch Desdemona hither. Iago, conduct them. You best know the place. Until she come, 
as truly as to heaven. I'll present how I did thrive in this fair lady's love and she and mine. Say it, Othello. Her father loved me, oft invited me, still questioned me, the story of my life from year to year. I ran it through. I spoke of most disastrous chances of moving accidents by flood and field, of being taken by the insolent foe and sold to slavery. And my redemption thence. This to hear would Desdemona seriously incline and with a greedy ear devour up my discourse. When I did speak of some distressful stroke that my youth suffered, my story being done, she gave me for my pains a world of sighs. She swore in faith twas strange, twas passing strange. Twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful. She wished she had not heard it, yet she wished that heaven had made her such a man. She thanked me and bade me if I had a friend that loved her, I should but teach him how to tell my story, and that would woo her. Upon this hint I spoke. She loved me for the dangers I had passed, and I loved her that she did pity them. This only is the witchcraft I have used. Here comes the lady, let her witness it. Come hither, gentle mistress. Do you perceive in all this noble company where most you owe obedience. My noble father, I do perceive here a divided duty. To you I am bound for life and education. My life and education both do learn me how to respect you. But here's my husband. And so much duty as my mother showed to you, preferring you before her father. So much I challenge that I may profess due to the moor, my lord. Come hither, Moor. I here do give you that with all my heart I would keep from you. For your sake, Jewel, I am glad at soul. I have no other child. I have done, my lord. He seeks you now to give her the state. The Turk, with most mighty preparation, makes for Cyprus. Othello, the fortitude of the place is best known to you. And though we have there Montano, a substitute of most allowed sufficiency, yet opinion a sovereign mistress of effects throws a more safer voice on you. I do undertake these present wars against the Ottomans. At ten in the morning here we'll meet again. Othello, leave some officer behind, and he shall our commission bring to you. Please, Your Grace, my ensign Iago, a man he is of honesty and trust. To his conveyance I assign my wife. With what else need for your good grace shall think to be sent after me. Let it be so. Good night to everyone. Adieu, brave Moor. Use Desdemona well. Look to her, Moore. Have a quick eye to see. She has deceived her father. May to thee. My life upon her faith. Come, Desdemona. I have but an hour of love, of worldly matters and direction to spend with thee. We must obey the time. What sayest thou, Rodrigo? What will I do? Why go to bed and sleep? I will incontinently drown myself. If you do, I shall never love thee after. Why, thou silly gentleman? What should I do? I confess it is my shame to be so fond of her, but it is not in my virtue to amend it. Virtue of shame. Tis in ourselves that we are thus or thus. Our bodies are gardens to the which our wills are gardeners. Come, be a man. Drown thyself. Drown cats and blind puppies. Put money in thy purse. 
It cannot be that Desdemona should long continue her love unto the moor, put money in thy purse, nor he to her. It was a violent commencement, and you shall see an answerable sequestration, put but money in thy purse. These moors are changeable in their wills. She must change for youth. She will find the error of her choice. She must have change. She must. If you must damn yourself, do it a more delicate way than drowning. Make all the money you can. You shall enjoy her. Will you be fast to my hope? You are sure of me. Go, make money. I have told thee often, and I tell thee again and again. I hate the moor. Adieu. I'll be with you time. Thus do I ever make my fool my purse. I hate the more. Let me see now. Cassio's a proper man. To get his place and to make up my will. A double knavery. How? How? After some time to abuse a fellow's ear. That his lieutenant Cassio is too familiar with his wife. Cassio had a person and a smooth disposed to be suspected. The moor is of a free and open nature that thinks men honest that but seem to be so, and will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. I have it. It is engendered. Hell and night must bring this monstrous birth to the world's light. is bringing you Richard Woodmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis in part one of William Shakespeare's Othello. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Say, Harlow, how long has Autolite been making electrical systems? Ever since 1911, Senator, when Autolite developed the first two-unit, six-volt automotive electrical system ever used as original equipment. That was the granddaddy of today's complete and precision-made system, which includes generator, starting motor, distributor, and coils, spark plugs, battery, voltage regulator, and their thousands of component parts. Oh, working together perfectly, eh, hello? Right, and you get the wonderful and economical operation you expect because it's an Autolite electrical system. That means that every unit and component part is related by Autolite engineering design and manufacturing skill to give you the smoothest performance money can buy. Sounds convincing, Wilcox. So, friends, be sure to specify Autolite original service parts for your Autolite-equipped car. And remember, from bumper to tail light. You're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Richard Woodmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis in Mr. Lewis's production of William Shakespeare's Othello, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. One. A month later, a seaport in Cyprus. The wars are over. A fellow sail has been sighted. Enter Cassio, Iago, Rodrigo, and Desdemona. The Moor's lieutenant pays innocent compliment to Desdemona, 
as Iago and the jealous Rodrigo stand apart. He takes her by the palm. I well said. Whisper. With as little a web as this, will I ensnare as great a fly as Cassio. I smile upon her, do. I will catch you in your own courtesies. Good, well kissed. An excellent courtesy. Is so indeed. Yet again, your fingers to your lips. Would they were cluster pipes for your sake. The Moor, I know his trumpet. His truly soul. Let's meet him and receive him. Oh, my fair warrior. My dear Othello. It gives me wonder great as my content to see you here before me. If it were now to die, it were now to be most happy. For I fear my soul has a content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown things. Heaven forbid, but that our loves and comforts should increase even as our days do grow. Amen to that sweet power. I cannot speak enough of this content. It stops me here. It is too much of joy. And this, and this, the greatest discord be that e'er our heart shall make. I pray thee, good Iago, go to the bay and disembark my coffers. Come, Cassio. Come, Desdemona. Once more, well met. I will tell you this, good Roderigo. Desdemona is directly in love with Cassio. With him? Why, it's not possible. Mark me with what violence she first loved the Moor, but for bragging and telling her fantastical lies. And will she love him still for prating? Let not thy discreet heart think so. Her eye must be fed. And what delight shall she have to look on the devil? Her delicate tenderness will find itself abused. And compel her to some second choice. Now, sir, this granted. Who stands so eminently in the degree of this fortune as Cassio does? I cannot believe that in her. She's full of the most blessed conditions. Blessed, figs end. Didst not see her paddle with the palm of Cassio's hand? Didst not mark that? Yes, but that was but courtesy. Luxury by this hand. An index, an obscure prologue to the history of lust and foul thoughts. They met so near with their lips that their breath embraced him. But, sir, watch you tonight. Cassio knows you not. I'll not be far from you. Do you find some occasion to anger Cassio? Well... Provoke him that he may strike you. For even out of that will I cause these of Cyprus to mutiny, whose qualifications shall come into no true trust again but by the displanting of Cassio. So shall you have a shorter journey to your desire. I will do this if I can bring it to any opportunity. I warrant thee. Meet me by and by at the Citadel. I must fetch his necessaries ashore. Farewell. Adieu. I'll have our Michael Cassio on the hip. Abuse him to the moor in the rank guard. Make the moor thank me, love me, and reward me for making him egregiously an ass. And practicing upon his peace and quiet. Even to madness. Tis here, but yet confused. Knavery's plain face is never seen till used. Scene. 
a hall in the castle. The time, early night. Enter Iago and Cassio. We must to the watch, Iago. Not this hour, Lieutenant. It's not yet ten o'clock. Our general cast us thus early for the love of his Desdemona, who let us not therefore blame. She is a most exquisite lady. Indeed, she is a most fresh and delicate creature. What an eye she has. Methinks it sounds a parley of provocation. An inviting eye, and yet methinks right modest. And when she speaks, is it not an alarm to love? It is indeed perfection. Well, happiness to them. Come, Lieutenant, I have a stoop of wine. And here without are a brace of cypress gallants that would fain have a measure to the health of a fellow. But not tonight, good Iago. I have very poor and unhappy brains for drinking. But one cup I'll drink for you. I have drunk but one cup tonight. I am unfortunate in the infirmity and dare not task my weakness with any more. What, man? Tis a night of revels. The gallants desire it. Where are they? Here at the door. I pray you, call them in. I'll do it, but it dislikes Gentlemen, I am drunk. This is my right hand, and this is my left hand. I am not drunk now. I can stand well enough and speak well enough. Very well, then. You must not think that I am drunk. To the master's platform. Come, let's set the watch. Good Montano. You see this fellow that has gone before. He is a soldier fit to stand by Caesar. Yet I fear the trust a fellow put him in on some odd time of his infirmity will shake this island. Huh? But is he often thus? Tis evermore the prologue to his sleep. It were well the general were put in mind of it. Help! Help! But hark, what noise? Help! You rogue, you rascal! What's the matter, Lieutenant? I'll beat the knave into a wicker bottle! Leave me! Do you break wrong? Good Lieutenant, break the hold your hand. Let me go, sir. I'll knock you on a mather. Come, come, you're drunk. that looks dead with grieving. Speak. Who began this? I do not know. I cannot speak any beginning to this peevish eyes. How came it, Michael, you were thus forgot? I pray you, pardon me, I cannot speak. Worthy Montano, what's the matter that you unlace your reputation thus and spend your rich opinion for the name of a night brawler? Give me answer to it. Worthy old fellow, I am hurt to danger. Your officer, Iago, can inform you. Now, by heaven, if I stir or do but lift this arm, the best of you shall sink in my rebuke. Iago, who began? If you deliver more or less than truth, you are no soldier. Touch me not so near. I had rather have this tongue cut from my mouth than it should do offense to Michael Cassio. Yet I persuade myself to speak the truth. Shall nothing wrong him? Thus it is, General. Montano and myself being in speech, there comes a fellow crying out for help, and Cassio following him with determined sword to execute upon him. Sir, Montano steps into Cassio and entreats his pause, 
Myself the crying fellow did pursue. He swift of foot outran my purpose. When I came back, for this was brief, I found them close together at blow and thrust, even as again they were when you yourself did part them. Though Cassio did some little wrong to him, yet surely he received from him that fled some strange indignity which patience could not pass. I know, Iago, your honesty and love does mince this matter, making it light to Cassio. Cassio, I love thee, but never more be officer of mine. Montano, for your hurts, myself will be your surgeon. Leave him off. Iago, look with care about the town and silence those whom this vile brawl distracted. Good night. Tell me, Cassio, what was he that you followed with your sword? What had he done to you? I remember a mass of things. Nothing distinctly. Quarreled. Nothing wherefore. But you are now well enough. How came you thus recovered? It has pleased the devil drunkenness to give place to the devil wrath. One unperfectness shows me another to make me frankly despise myself. Come, you are too severe immorally. I will ask him for my place again. He shall tell me I am a drunkard. Come, 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 come. You or any man living may be drunk at some time. I'll tell you what you shall do. Our general's wife is now the general. Confess yourself freely to her. Importune her help to put you in your place again. She is of so free, so kind, so apt, so blessed a disposition. She holds it a vice in her goodness not to do more than she is requested. This broken joint between you and her husband. Entreat her to splinter. You advise me well, I protest. In the sincerity of love and honest kindness. In the morning will I beseech the virtuous Desdemona to undertake for me. I am desperate of my fortunes if they check me here. You are in the right. Good night, Lieutenant. I must do the watch. Good night. Honest Iago. And what is he then that says I play the villain? When this advice is free, I give and honest. Provost is thinking, and indeed the course to win the moor again. For while this honest fool plies Desdemona to repair his fortunes, and she for him pleads strongly to the moor, I'll pour this pestilence into his ear, that she repels him for her lust, and by how much she strives to do him good, she shall undo her credit with the moor. So will I turn her virtue into pitch, and out of her own goodness make the net that shall enmesh them all. Suspense. Part one of Othello by William Shakespeare. Tonight's stars Richard Widmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis. Suspense. The abridged Othello was adapted for suspense by Anthony Ellis and Elliot Lewis. The program was transcribed and directed by Mr. Lewis. 
with music arranged by Lucian Marwick, from themes by Giuseppe Verdi. The orchestra was conducted by Lud Luskin. Featured in tonight's cast were Joseph Kearns as Cassio, William Conrad as Montano, and Irene Pedro as Amelia. Your narrator is Larry Thorne. Richard Widmark may soon be seen in the 20th Century Fox picture, Pick Up on South Street. And remember next week, Mr. Lloyd Nolan in A Vial of Death. You can buy Autolite Staple batteries, Autolite resistor or standard type spark plugs, and Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Richard Widmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents part two of the first radio dramatization of William Shakespeare's tragic history of love and death, Othello. Our stars, Richard Widmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis. some gardening? Yes, sir, Hap. And here's my favorite plant. Well, that's an Autolite staple battery. Sure. It's a power plant for quick, dependable starts. And unlike other plants, this one needs water only three times a year in normal car use. Oh, it's a daisy, Harlow. And fern away the best battery blooming. It never gets bushed, eh, Harlow? <laughs> right. The Autolite staple is tougher than a cactus. Fiberglass retaining mats protect every positive plate to reduce shedding and flaking. And give that famous battery longer life, as proved by tests conducted according to accepted life cycle standards. So, visit your Autolite battery dealer, the expert who services all makes of batteries. To locate him quickly, phone Western Union by number and ask for Operator 25. I'll gladly tell you the name of your nearest Autolite battery dealer, where you can get an Autolite staple, the battery that needs water only three times a year in normal car use. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite presents transcribed part two of William Shakespeare's Othello, starring Richard Widmark as Iago, Kathy Lewis as Desdemona, and Elliot Lewis as the Moor, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. The scene is Cyprus. Othello has returned triumphant from the wars, now to govern the island with his wife, Desdemona. The ensign, Iago, jealous of the position held by Cassio, lieutenant to Othello, plots revenge on both Cassio and the Moor, whom he hates. Two things are to be done. My wife, Amelia, must move for Cassio to her mistress, Desdemona. I'll set her on. Myself the while to draw the moor apart and bring him jump when he may Cassio find soliciting his wife. Aye, that's the way. Dull not device by coldness and delay. In happy time, Iago. You have not been a bed then, Cassio? Why, no, the day it broke before we parted. I've made bold, Iago, to send into your wife. My suit to her is that she will, to virtuous Desdemona, procure me some access. And I'll devise a mean to draw the moor out of the way, that your converse and business may be more free. 
I humbly thank you for it. I never knew a Florentine more kind and honest. Good morrow, good lieutenant. I'm sorry for your displeasure, but all will sure be well. Are you coming? I will bestow you where you shall have time to speak your bosom freely. I am much bound to you. Assured, good Cassio, I will do all my abilities in your behalf. Bounteous, madam, whatever shall become of Michael Cassio, he's never anything but your true servant. Oh, sir, I thank you. Before Amelia here, I give you warrant of your place. Be assured, if I do vow of friendship, I'll perform it to the last article. My lord shall never rest. I'll intermingle everything he does with Cassio's suit. Therefore, be merry, Cassio. For I should rather die than give your cause away. Madam, here comes the Lord. Oh, madam, I'll take my leave. Why stay and hear me speak? Madam, not now. I'm very ill at ease. Unfit for my own purpose. I'll do your discretion. Ah, I like not that. What do you think? Nothing, my lord. Or if I... I know not what. Was not that Cassio parted from my wife? Cassio, my lord? No, sure, I cannot think it that he would sneak away so guilty like seeing you coming. I do believe to see. How now, my lord? I have been talking with a suitor here, a man that languishes in your displeasure. Who is it you mean? Why, your lieutenant Cassio. Good, my lord, if I have any grace or power to move you, I pray you call him back. Went he hence now? Yes, faith so humble that he has left part of his griefs with me. I suffer with him. Good love, call him back. Not now, sweet Desdemona. Some other time. But shall be shortly. The sooner sweet for you. Shall be tonight for supper. No, not tonight. Tomorrow dinner, then. I shall not dine at home. I meet the captains at the Citadel. Why, then, tomorrow night or Tuesday morn, on Tuesday morning night or Wednesday morn. Name the time, but let it not exceed three days. In faith, he's penitent. When shall he come? Tell me, Othello. No more. Let him come when he will. I will deny you nothing. Whereon I do beseech you grant me this to leave me but a little to myself. Shall I deny you? No. Farewell, my lord. Farewell, my Desdemona. I'll come to thee straight. Amelia, come. Perdition catch my soul. But I do love thee. And when I love thee not, chaos is come again. My noble lord... What do you say, Arnold? Did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? He did from first to last. Why do you ask? But for a satisfaction of my thoughts, no further harm. Why of your thought, Arnold? I did not think he had been acquainted with her. Oh, yes, and went between us very often. Indeed. Indeed. Aye, indeed. Do you discern aught in that? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord? Honest, aye, honest. My lord, for aught I know, what do you think? Think, my lord? Think, my lord. By heaven, he echoes me. As if there were some monster in his thought, too hideous to be shown. You meant something, I heard you say, but now you liked not that when Cassio left my wife. What did you not like? If you do love me, show me thy thought. My lord, you know I love you. I think you do. 
After I know you are full of love and honesty and weigh your words before you give them breath, therefore these stops of yours frighten me the more. For Michael Cassio, I dare be sworn, I think that he is honest. I think so, too. Men should be what they seem. Certain men should be what they seem. Why, then I think Cassio's an honest man. Nay, yet there's more in this. I prithee speak to me as to thy thinking. Good, my lord, pardon me. Though I am bound to every act of duty, I am not bound to that all slaves are free to. Utter my thoughts... Why, say they are vile and false. You conspire against your friend, Iago, if you but think him wronged and make his ear a stranger to your thoughts. It were not for your quiet nor your good, nor for my manhood, honesty, or wisdom to let you know my thoughts. By heaven, I'll know your thought. Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock that meat it feeds on. Why? Why is this? Do you think I'd make a life of jealousy? No, Iago. I see before I doubt. When I doubt, prove, and on the proof, there is no more but this. Away at once with love or jealousy. I am glad of it. For now I shall have reason to show the love and duty that I bear you with franker spirit. Therefore, as I am bound, receive it from me. Look to your wife. Observe her well with Cassio. Wear your eye thus, not jealous nor secure. I would not have your free and noble nature out of self-bounty be abused. Look to it. Do you say so? She did deceive her father, marrying you. And when she seemed to shake and fear your looks, she loved them most. And so she did. I see this hath a little dashed your spirit. Not a jot. Not, not a jot. In faith, I fear it has. I hope you will consider what is spoke comes from my love. But I do see your mood. I pray you not to strain my speech to grosser issues, nor to larger reach than to suspicion. I will not. Should you do so, my lord, my speech should fall into such vile success as my thoughts aim not at. Cassio is my worthy friend. My lord, I see you are moved. No, not much moved. I do not think that Desdemona is honest. Long live she so. And long live you to think so. Farewell. If you do perceive more... Let me know more. Set your wife, Amelia, to observe. Leave me, Iago. My lord, I take my leave. If she be false, oh, then heaven mocks itself. I'll not believe it. Oh, now, my dear fellow, your dinner and the generous islanders by you invited to attend your presence. I am to blame. Why is your speech so faint? Are you not well? I have a pain upon my forehead. Say that this watch until away again. Let me but bind your head. Within this hour, it will be well again. Your handkerchief is too little. Othello puts the handkerchief from him, and Desdemona unwittingly drops it. Come, I'll go in with you. I'm very sorry that you are not well. They exit, leaving Amelia alone in the garden. I'm glad I have found this handkerchief. This was her first remembrance from the moor. In recent days, my wayward husband has a hundred times wooed me to steal it. But she so loves the token for a fellow conjurer she should ever keep it that she reserves it evermore about her to kiss and talk to. How now? What do you hear alone? Do not you chide. 
I have a thing for you. A thing for me? What will you give me now for that same handkerchief? What handkerchief? What handkerchief? Why, that the Moor first gave to Desdemona. That which so often you did bid me steal. Has stolen it from her? No, Faith. She let it drop by negligence, and to the advantage I being here took it up. Look, here it is. A good wench. Give it me. What will you do with it that you have been so earnest to have me felt it? Why, what's that to you? If it be not for some purpose of import, give it me again. Poor lady, she'll run mad when she shall lack it. I have use for it. Go, leave me. I will in Cassio's lodging lose this handkerchief and let him find it. Trifles light as air are to the jealous confirmation strong as proofs of holy writ. This may do something. The moor already changes with my poison. I did say so. Look where he comes. False to me. To me? Why, how now, General? No more of that. Be gone. You set me on the rack. I swear it is better to be much abused than but to know a little. And I am sorry to hear this. Villain! Be sure thou prove my lover's strumpet. Be sure of it. Give me the ocular proof. Or by the worth of man's eternal soul, you'd better have been born a dog than answer my weight wrath. It's come to this. Make me to see it. I'll have some proof. I'll not endure it. I see, sir, you are eaten up with passion. I do repent me that I put it to you. You would be satisfied... Would nay, I will. Give me a living reason. She's disloyal. I do not like the office. But since I am entered into this cause so far, pricked to it by foolish honesty and love, I will go on. I lay with Cassio lately, and being troubled with a raging tooth, I could not sleep. There are a kind of men so loose of soul that in their sleep will mutter their affairs. One of this kind is Cassio. In sleep, I heard him say, Sweet Desdemona, let us be wary. Let us hide our love. And then, sir, would he grip and wring my hand, cry out, sweet creature, and then kiss me hard as if he plucked up kisses by the roots that grew upon my lips, and then cried, cursed fate that gave thee to the moor. Monster. Monster. Tis a shrewd doubt, though it be but a dream. And this may help to thicken other proofs that do demonstrate thin her. Tear her to pieces. Nay, but be wise, yet we see nothing done. She may be honest yet. Tell me but this. Have you not sometimes seen a handkerchief spotted with strawberries in your wife's hand? I gave her such a one. It was my first gift. I know not that. But such a handkerchief, I'm sure it was your wife's. Did I today see Cassio wipe his beard with? If. Be that. If be that, or any that was hers, it speaks against her with the other proofs. Now do I see tis true. Oh, blood, Iago. Blood. Then witness that here Iago does give up the execution of his wit, hands, heart, to wrong the fellow's service. Let him command, and to obey shall be in me remorse what bloody business ever. I will upon the instant put you to it. Within these three days, let me hear you say that Cassio's not alive. My friend is dead. Tis done at your request. But let her live. Damn her! Lewd minx, damn her! 
Come, go with me apart. I will withdraw to furnish me with some swift means of death for the fair devil. Now art thou my lieutenant. I am your own. Forever. Bringing you Richard Woodmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis in part two of William Shakespeare's Othello. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Ah, many times the time, eh, Harlow? Yeah, the time to get an Autolite Stayful battery. The perfectly performing, peerless producer of prompt propulsions that needs water only three times a year in normal car use. A pretty particular package, Harlow. Yes, Hap, and that personable power-packed Paragon is persistently prepared to give quick starting power every time. Fiberglass retaining mats protect every positive plate to reduce shedding and flaking and give the Autolite Stayful battery longer life as proved by tests conducted according to accepted life cycle standards. And what's the name again, Harlow? Why, the Autolite Stay Full, the battery that says right on the case, needs water only three times a year in normal car use. Friends, to quickly locate your nearest Autolite battery dealer, just phone Western Union by number and ask for Operator 25. I'll gladly tell you his name and address. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Richard Widmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis in the concluding act of Mr. Lewis's production of William Shakespeare's Othello, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Desdemona's bedchamber, early evening. Well, my good lady, how do you, Desdemona? Well, my good lord. Give me your hand. This hand is moist, my lady. It yet has felt no age, nor known no sorrow. Hot, hot, and moist. Here's a young and sweating devil here that commonly rebels. Tis a good hand, a frank one. You may indeed say so, for t'was that hand that gave away my heart. A liberal hand. I cannot speak of it. Come, come, your promise. What promise, child? I have sent to bid Cassio come speak with you. I have a salt and sullen room offend me. Lend me thy handkerchief. Here, my lord. That which I gave you. I have it not about me. Not? No, safe, my lord. That's a fault. That handkerchief did an Egyptian to my mother give. She dying gave it me and bid me when my fate would have me wife to give it her. I did so. And take heed on it. Make it a darling like your precious eye. To lose or give it away with such perdition as nothing else could match. Faith is true. Most veritable, therefore, look to it well. And would to God that I had never seen it. Ah, wherefore? Why do you speak so startling and rash? Is it lost? Is it gone? Speak, is it out of the way? Bless Say you. It is not lost, but what and if it were? <sighs> I say it is not lost. Touch it. Let me see it. Why, so I can, sir, but I will not now. This is a trick. 
to put me from my suit. I pray let Cassio be received again. Let's be that handkerchief my mind misgives. I pray talk to me of Cassio. The handkerchief. A man that all his time has founded his good fortunes on your love, shared danger. The handkerchief. Faith, you are to blame. Virtuously, and yet do so. The devil their virtue tempts, and they tempt heaven. So they do nothing. Tis a venial slip. But if I give my wife a handkerchief... What then? Why, then tis hers, my lord. And being hers, she may, I think, bestow it on any man. She is protectress of her honor, too. May she give that? Oh, tis foul in her. With mine office. That's fouler. Get me some poisoning, Argo. This night. I'll not expostulate with her, lest her body and beauty unprovide my mind again. This night, Iago. Do it not with poison. Strangle her in her bed. Good. Good. The justice of it pleases. Very good. And for Cassio, let me be his undertaker. You shall hear more by midnight. Othello? Aye, Desdemona. Will you come to bed, my lord? Have you prayed tonight, Desdemona? Aye, my lord. If you bethink yourself of any crime unreconciled as yet to heaven and grace, solicit for its strength. Alas, my lord, what may you mean by that? Well, do it and be brief. I will walk by. I would not kill thy unprepared spirit. No, heaven forfend, I would not kill thy soul. Talk you of killing? Aye, I do. Heaven have mercy on me. Think on thy sins. They are loves I bear to you. And for that you die. That death's unnatural that kills for loving. What's the matter? That handkerchief which I so loved and gave you, you gave to Cassio. No. By my life and soul, send for the man and ask him. Sweet soul, take heed. Take heed of perjury. You're on your deathbed. Aye, but not yet to die. Yes, presently. Therefore confess you freely of your sin. You are to die. Lord, have mercy on me. I say amen. And have you mercy, too. I never did offend you in my life. Never loved Cassio. Never gave him token. Oh, perjured woman. You stone my heart and make me call what I intend to do a murder, which I thought a sacrifice. I never gave it to him. Send for him hither. Let him confess the truth. He has confessed. What, my lord? That he has used thee. How? Unlawfully? I. He will not say so. No, his mouth has stopped. Honest Iago has taken order for him. I fear interprets then. What? Is he dead? Had all his hairs been lives, my great revenge had stomach for them all. Alas, he is betrayed and I undone. Oh, strumpet! Weep you for him to my face! Banish me, my lord, but kill me not. Kill me tomorrow. Let me live. Nay, it is too late. Oh, Lord. Lord, Lord. Oh, my Lord, my Lord. My Lord, my Lord. Good, my Lord, I will speak a word with you. Tis Amelia. Ah, no more moving. Still is the grave. My Lord. Did she come in? 
she'll sure speak to my wife. My wife. My wife. My wife. I have no wife. And if we speak to them, I may speak to you, good my lord. Soft, by and by. Must be the curtains draw. What's the matter? Oh, my good lord. What now? My lady's voice. Oh, help. Help. Oh, help. Oh, lady, speak again. Sweet Desdemona. Oh, sweet mistress, speak. Guilty death. Must she die? Oh. Who has done this deed? It was I that killed her. She was false as water. How oh, is rash of fire to say that she was false? Oh, she was heavenly true. Your husband knew it all. Your husband. That she was forced to wed I would catch you. If he say so, he lies to his heart. She was too fond of her most filthy bargain. Uh, help, 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 help. The Lord has killed my mistress. Murder, murder. What is the matter? How now, General? Oh, you come, Iago. You have done well that men must lay their murders on your neck. What is the matter? Disprove this villain if you are a man. He says you told him that his wife was false. I told him what I thought and told no more than what he found himself was apt and true. But did you ever tell him she was false? I did. You told a lie. An odious, damned lie. She fought with Cassio. Iago knows that she was Cassio as the act of shame a thousand times committed. And she did gratify his amorous works with the recognizance and pledge of love which I first gave her. It was a handkerchief. So more. The handkerchief you speak on, I found by fortune and did give my husband. For often with a solemn earnestness, more than indeed belonged to such a trifle, he begged of me to steal it. Villainous! She gave it, Cassio. No, alas, I found it and I did gift my husband. Filth, you lie! Are there no stones in heaven but what serve for the thunder? Precious villain! Bring his thoughts on him! I bleed, sir, but not killed. I am not sorry, neither. I'd have thee live. For in my sense, there's happiness to die. Othello, you must forsake this room and go with us. Your power and your command is taken off. You shall cause prisoner rest so that the nature of your fault be known to the Venetian state. Come, bring him away. Soft, you. A word or two. I have done the state some service and they know it. No more of that. I pray you, in your letters, when you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of them as they are. Nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well. Of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed to the extreme. Of one whose hand, like the base Indian, Threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe. I kissed thee ere I killed thee. No way but this. Killing myself to die upon a kiss. (laughs) 
on the tragic lodging of this bed. This is thy work, Iago. The object poisoned sight, let it be hid. Myself will straight aboard and to the state this heavy act with heavy heart relate. Presented by Autolite, the night stars Richard Whitmark, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for Autolite, world's largest independent manufacturer of automotive electrical equipment. Autolite is proud to serve the greatest names in the industry. They are members of the Autolite family, as well as other 98,000 Autolite distributors and dealers in the United States and thousands more in Canada and throughout the world. Our family also includes the nearly 30,000 men and women in 28 great Autolite plants from coast to coast and Autolite plants in many foreign countries, as well as the 18,000 people who have invested a portion of their savings in Autolite. Every Autolite product is backed by constant research and precision built to the highest standards of quality and performance. So remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. Next week, a story based on fact. The true report of a man who lost a jar which contained the destruction of a city. It is called A Vial of Death, and it will star Mr. Lloyd Nolan. That's next week on Suspense. The Abridged Othello was adapted for suspense by Anthony Ellis and Elliot Lewis. The program was transcribed and directed by Mr. Lewis, with music arranged by Lucian Marwick, from themes by Giuseppe Verdi. The orchestra was conducted by Lud Luskin. Featured in tonight's cast were Joseph Kearns as Cassio, William Conrad as Montano, and Irene Tedro as Amelia. Your narrator is Larry Thor. Richard Widmark may soon be seen in the 20th Century Fox picture, Pick Up on South Street. And remember next week, Mr. Lloyd Nolan in A Vial of Death. Buy Autolite staple batteries, Autolite resistor or standard type spark plugs, and Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. From Hollywood, California, the Columbia Network presents William Shakespeare's historical drama, Henry IV. Monday night, and another imposing list of actors from stage and screen join Columbia to bring you the seventh in a cycle of eight Shakespearean plays. Tonight's production, Henry IV has been uniquely treated in that the special full-hour adaptation for radio combines both part one and part two 
of this great historical play, thus making an even more memorable radio occasion for millions of listeners. In tonight's performance of Henry IV, you will hear Walter Houston featured in the title role, Brian Ahern as the Prince of Wales, Walter Connolly as Sir John Falstaff, Humphrey Bogart as Hotspur, son of the Earl of Northumberland, and Dame May Whitty as Mrs. Quickly, the hostess. The brilliant supporting cast is headed by Ben Webster as Westmoreland, Ian McLaren as Worcester, Patrick J. Kelly as Sir Walter Blunt, Eric Snowden as Northumberland, and Jack Smart as Poyne. Conway Turrell, distinguished actor of stage and screen, will come forward in just a moment as narrator to set the stage for the first scene. Meantime, Victor Bay, Columbia's talented young conductor, raises his baton to lead the orchestra in the musical introduction to Henry IV. Worcester, malevolent to you in all aspects. 
which makes him prune himself and bristle up the crest of youth against your dignity. But I have sent for him to answer this. Cousin, on Wednesday next, our council we will hold at Windsor. So inform the Lord. I will, Milly. family are summoned to Windsor. Thomas, the wily Earl of Worcester, Henry, the old Earl of Northumberland, and the latter's young son, Harry Percy, the fiery Hotspur, who has refused to surrender his Scotch prisoners. The king speaks. My blood has been too cold and temperate, and apt to stir at these indignities, and you have found me. But accordingly, you tread upon my patience. But be sure I will from henceforth rather be myself mighty and to be feared. Our house, my sovereign liege, little deserves the scourge of greatness to be used on it. And that same greatness, too, which our own hands have hoped to make so portly. Who's to get thee gone? For I do see danger and disobedience in thine eye. You have good leave to leave us. And we need your use and counsel. We shall send for you. The Lord. Dumbledore, you are about to speak. Yea, my good Lord. These prisoners in your highness' name demanded, which Hotspur here at Holmden took, were, as he says, not with such strength denied as is delivered to your majesty. Either envy, therefore, or Miss Prisham is guilty of this fault, and not my son. My liege, I did deny no prisoners, but I remember when the fight was done, when I was dry with rage and extreme toil, breathless and faint, leaning upon my sword, Came there a certain lord, neat and trimly dressed, fresh as a bridegroom, his chin new reaped. With many a holiday and lady terms, he questioned me. Amongst the rest, demanded my prisoners in your majesty's behalf. I then, all smarting with my wounds being cold, answered neglectingly, I know not what he should, or he should not. But it made me mad to see him shine so brisk, and smell so sweet. And talk so like a waiting gentlewoman of guns and drums and wounds. God save the mark, I answered indirectly, as I said. And I beseech you, let not his report come current for an accusation betwixt my love and your high majesty. Why, yet you do deny your prisoners. But with proviso an exception that we at our own charge shall ransom your brother-in-law, the foolish Mortimer. Shall our coffers then be empty to redeem a traitor home? No, on the barren mountains let him starve. But I shall never hold that man my friend, whose tongue shall ask me for one penny cost to ransom home, revolted Mortimer. Revolted Mortimer? He never did fall off my sovereign liege, but for the chance of war. Thou is belie him, Hosper. Thou is belie him. Thou not ashamed. Sinner, henceforth, let me not hear you speak of Mortimer. Send me your prisoners with the speediest means. Or you shall hear in such kind from me as will displease you. Lord Northumberland, we license your departure with your son. Send us your prisoners. Or you'll hear of it. Your Majesty, Your Majesty, Your Majesty, Your Majesty. And if the devil come and roar for them, I will not send them. I will after straight and tell him so. What? Drunk with collar. Stay and pause a while. Here comes your uncle, Worcester. Who struck this heat up after I was gone? He will, forsooth, have all my prisoners. When I urged the ransom once again of my wife's brother, and his cheek looked pale, and on my face he turned an eye of death. I cannot blame him. Was not Mortimer proclaimed by Richard that dead is the next of blood? He was. I heard the proclamation. Ah, but soft, I pray you. 
Did King Richard then proclaim my brother Edmund Mortimer heir to the crown? He did. Myself did hear it. Nay, then I cannot blame his cousin King that wished him on the barren mountain starve. Or shall it for shame be spoken in these days, or fill up chronicles in time to come, that men of your nobility and power that gauge them both in an unjust behalf, as both of you, God pardon it, have done, to put down Richard, that sweet, lovely rose, and plant this thorn, this canker, Bolingbroke? Good cousin, give me audience for a while. Those same noble Scots that are your prisoners? I'll keep them all. By God, he shall not have a Scot of them. I'll keep them by this hand. Yeah, well, kinsman, I'll talk to you and your better temper to attend. Well, I've done, he faith. Then once more to your Scottish prisoners. Deliver them up without their ransom straight. And make the Douglas son your only mean for powers in Scotland. You, my lord Northumberland, your son in Scotland being thus employed, shall secretly into the bosom creep of that same noble prelate well-beloved, the Archbishop. Of York is not true, who bears hard his brother's death at Bristol, the Lord Scroope. I smell it upon my life, it will do well. Before the game's afoot, thou still let'st slip. I cannot choose but be a noble plot. And then the power of Scotland and of York to join with Mortimer, eh? And so they shall. And his no little reason bids us speed to save our heads by raising of a head. The king will always think him in our debt. And he hath found a time to pay us home. See already how he doth begin to make us strangers to his looks of love. Aye, he does, he does. We'll be revenged on him. A powerful Percy family plots to overthrow Henry IV. And while the king's fate hangs in the balance, the Prince of Wales sits idly at his favorite tavern, talking idly with his favorite companion, Fat John Falstaff. Now, Hal, what time of day is it, lad? What the devil has thou to do with the time of the day? Unless ours were cups of sack and clocks the tongues of boards, <laughs> I see no reason why thou shouldst be so superfluous to demand the time of day. Indeed, you come near me now, Hal. <laughs> ah, well, we that take purses go by the moon. Yea, governed as the sea is by the moon. Now in as low ebb as the foot of the ladder, and by and by in as high a flow as the ridge of the gallows. Thou hast the most unsavory similes. (laughs) Sweet wag, when thou art king, do not hang a thief. No, thou shalt. Shall I? Oh, rare. By the Lord, I'll be a brave judge. Ah, Thou judgest false already. I mean, thou shalt have the hanging of the thieves, and so become a rare hangman. Oh, thy quips and thy quiddities. Oh, thou hast a damnable iteration. Thou art able to corrupt a saint. Thou hast done much harm upon me, Hal. Why, thou stuffed coat bag of gut. God forgive thee for it, Hal, but I must give over this life, and I will give it over. By the Lord, and I do not, I am a villain. I'll be damned for never a king's son in Christmas. Thou swollen parcel of dropsies, where shall we take a purse tomorrow? Sounds where thou wilt. Ah, thou old bearded Satan. <laughs> I see a good amendment of life in thee, from praying to purse-taking. Why, Hal, tis my vocation. Hal, tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation. <laughs> ah, good morrow, sweet Hal. Good morrow, boy. <laughs> what says Sir John Sack and Sugar? I'm as melancholy as a jib cat. 
My lads, tomorrow morning early at East Cheap, there are traders riding to London with fat purses. If you will go, I will stuff your purses. If you will not, carry it home and be hanged. Hell, wilt thou make one? Who, I, Rob? I, a thief? Not I, by my faith. Thou comest not at the blood royal if thou darest not. I'll carry it home. By the Lord, I'll be a traitor then when thou art king. I care not. Oh, if men were to be saved by merit, what hole in hell? Sir John, Sir John, I pray thee, leave the prince and me alone. I will lay him down such reasons for this adventure that he shall go. Well, God give thee the spirit of persuasion. Farewell. You shall find me in East Cheap. Now, be good, sweet honey lord, ride with us tomorrow. I have a jest to execute that I cannot manage alone. Falstaff, Bardor, Peter, and Catsill shall rob these men. When they have... Coins easily persuades the Prince of Wales to share in a practical joke on Falstaff and the other thieves. While the latter are robbing the caravan of merchants, the Prince and Poins will slip away, return in new disguises, and rob the thieves of their booty. The next night, Poins and the Prince join the outlaws on the highway. Poins has hidden Falstaff's horse as Sir John is tumbling about in the targ. Poins! Poins and be hanged! Poins! Peace, you fat kidnid rascal. What a brawling dost thou keep? How? Aye. Sweet prince, where's Poins? He has walked up to the top of the hill. Oh, I am accursed to rob in that thief's company. The rascal hath removed my horse and tied him I know not where. Poins! A plague upon you. Part off. Eat I'll starve there, I'll rob a foot further. Hal, eight yards of ungry even ground is three score and ten miles afoot with me. And the stony-hearted villains know it very well. The plague upon it when thieves cannot be true to one another. A plague upon you all. Give me my horse, you rogues. Give me my horse and be hanged. Peace, you fat guts. Lie down. Lay thine ear close to the ground, and list if thou canst hear the tread of travellers. Have you any levers to lift me up again, being down? I prithee, good Prince Hal, help me to my horse, good king's son. Out, you rogue. Shall I be your ostler? Thou go hang thyself in thine own air apparent garters. If I be tain, I'll teach for this. And I have not ballads made on you all and sung to filthy tunes. Let a cup of sack be my poison. My lord, my lord. Give me my horse. Peace. Desbardo, what news? On with your vessels. There's money of the king's coming down the hill. Tis going to the king's exchequer. You lie, you rogue. Tis going to the king's tavern. Bardo. I. Beto. I. Getzel. I. You four shall front them in the narrow lane. Poins and I will walk lower. If they escape from your encounters, then they light on us. How many be there of them? Some eight or ten. Ooh, will they not rob us? What? A coward, Sir John Paunch? Indeed, I am not John of Gaunt, your grandfather, but yet no coward, Hal. Well, we'll leave that to the proof. Farewell, and stand fast. Come, neighbor. 
boys shall lead us horses down the hill. We'll walk a foot a while. And these are our legs. Stand! Stand! Down with them! Cut the villain's throat! Oh, we are undone! Ye gore-bellied knaves, are ye undone? Ah! Down with them! Oh, God of mercy! God, I'll find them. Oh, bless us, bless us. Oh, caterpillars, bacon-fed knaves. That's you. Please him. Please him. Aye. Oh, oh. Ye fat chuffs, I would you had your store on here. Bless us, bless us. What, ye knaves? Young men must live. Now, on, bacon. On. Point. Point, the thieves have bound the true men. Now, could thou and I rob the thieves and go merrily to London? It would be argument for a week, laughter for a month, and a good jest forever. <laughs> Where are our disguises? Hard by. Stand close, I hear them coming. Come, <laughs> master. <laughs> Let us share, and then to horse before day. Aye, aye. And the prince and points be not too arrant cowards. There's no equity stirring. Aye. There's no more valor in that points than in a wild duck. No. <laughs> Here. Here. Come on in. Much ease. <laughs> now, merrily the horse. The thieves are all scattered and possessed with fear. <laughs> Falstaff sweats to death and lards the leaner as he walks along. <laughs> Were it not for laughing, I should pity him. <laughs> Away, good boy. <laughs> How the rogue roared. <laughs> Prince of Wales and Poins now return to the tavern. Shortly after their arrival, Paul Stuck and his companions burst into the room. Old Sir John is puffing and blowing with rage. Welcome, Jack, welcome. Where hast thou been? A plague of all cowards, I think. Give me a cup of sack. How now, wool sack? A king's son. If I do not beat thee out of thy kingdom with a dagger of laugh, and drive all thy subjects before thee like a flock of wild geese. I'll never wear hair on me face more. You, Prince of Wales. Why, you plague of a round man, what's the matter? Are you not a coward? Answer me that. And points there. Zounds, you fat paunch, and you call me coward, but the Lord I'll stab thee. I call thee coward. I'll see thee damned if I call thee coward. But I'd give a thousand pounds I could run as fast as thou canst. Give me a cup of sack. I'm a rogue if I drunk today. Oh, villain. Thy lips are scarce white since thou drunkest last. All's one for that. Plague of all cowards. Still, say I. Why, what's the matter? What's the matter? There be four of us here have taken a thousand pounds this day morning. Where is it, Jack? Where is it? Where is it? Taken from us it is. A hundred upon poor four of us. What? A hundred men? I am a rogue if I were not at half-swords with a dozen of them two hours together. Oh, oh I've escaped by miracle. I'm eight times thrust through the doublet, four through the hose, my buckler cut through and through, my sword hacked like a handsaw. I never dealt better since I was a man. All would not do. 
A plague of all cowards. Let them speak. If they speak more or less than truth, they are villains and the sons of darkness. Speak, sirs. How was it? We four set upon some dozen. Sixteen at least. And bound them. No, no, they were not bound. You rogue, they were bound. Every man of them. As we were sharing, some six or seven fresh men set upon us. And unbound the rest. And then came in the other. What? Fought you with them all? All. I know not what you call all. But if I fought not with fifty of them, I'm a bunch of ready. <laughs> Pray God you've not murdered some of them. Nay, that's past praying for. I've peppered two of them. Two I'm sure I've paid. Two rogues in Buckram's shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I tell thee what, Hal. If I tell thee a lie, spit in me face. Call me horse. Four rogues in Buckram let drive at well, four, thou saidst, but two. Four, Hal, I told thee four. I, I, he said four. These four came all afront and mainly thrust at me. I made me no more ado about that, but took all their seven points in my target. Thus seven? Why, there were but four even now. In Buckram? I have four in Buckram suits. Seven? Why, these hills, or I'm a villain else. <laughs> oh, prithee, let him alone. We shall have more anon. <laughs> Dost thou hear me, Hal? Aye, and mark thee too, Jack. I'll do so, for it's worth the listening to. These nine men in Buckram that I told thee of... <laughs> two more already! ...began to give me ground. But I followed so close, came in foot and hand, and with the thought seven of the eleven, I paid. Oh, monstrous! Eleven buckram men grown out of two. But as the devil would have it, three misbegotten knaves in Kendall Green came at my back and let drive at me. For it was so dark, Hal, thou couldst not see thy hand. Why, how couldst thou know these men in Kendall Green? But eh? it was so dark, thou couldst not see thy hand. Uh. I'll no longer be guilty of this sin. This sanguine coward, this bed-presser, this horseback-breaker, this huge hill of... Oh, you starveling, you eel-skin, you dried neat-tongue, you stump-fish. Oh, for breath to wonder what is likely. Well, breathe a while and then to it again. And when thou hast tired thyself in base comparison, hear me speak but this. Mark, Jack. We two saw you four set on to and bound them, and were masters of their wealth. Mark now how a plain tale shall put you down. Then did we two set on you four, and with a word out faced you from your prize and have it. Yea, and can show it you here in the house. And Falstaff, you carried your guts away as nimbly and with as quick dexterity and roared for mercy and still ran and roared as ever I heard bull calf. <laughs> Why, what a slave art thou to heck thy sword as thou hast done and then say it was in fight. <laughs> what trick canst thou now find out to hide thee from this open and apparent shame? Come, let's hear, Jack. What trick hast thou now? Oh, 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 by the Lord. I knew ye as well as he that made. Oh! <laughs> Why, hear ye, me masters. Was it for me to kill the heir apparent? Should I turn upon the true prince? No, no, no. But by the Lord, lads, I'm glad you have the money. Hostess, clap to the doors. Watch tonight, pray tomorrow. Gallants, lads, boys, hearts of gold. All the titles of good fellowship come to you. Oh, my lord, the prince. Oh, no, my lady, the hostess. My lord, 
There is a nobleman of the court and door would speak with you. He says he comes from your father. Well, give him as much as will make him a royal man and send him back again to my father. Hal, shall I give him his answer? Oh, pretty do, Jack. Faith, and I'll send him packing. Hey, Vito, tell me now in earnest, how came Falstaff's sword so hacked? Why, he hacked it with his dagger and said he would make you believe it was done in fight and persuaded us to do the like. <laughs> Here comes Jack. Here comes Barebone. Oh, now, my sweet creature of bombast. There's villainous news abroad. Here was Sir John Bracy come from your father. You must to the court in the morning. That same mad fellow of the north, Hotspur, and that sprightly Scot of Scots, Douglas, and Worcester is stolen away tonight. Thy father's beard is turned white with the news. Tell me, Hal, art not thou horribly afeard? Thou being heir apparent, could the world pick thee out three such enemies? Art thou not horribly afeard? Not a whit. I lack some of thy instinct. Oh, my lord, my lord, the sheriff of the most monstrous watches of the door. They're come to search the house. Dost thou hear, Hal? If you will deny the sheriff, so. If not, let him enter. <laughs> Go, hide thee behind the arras, Jack. Call in the sheriff. Sheriff? My lord. Now, Master Sheriff, what is your will with me? First, pardon me, my lord. Are you and Cry have followed certain men unto this house? What men? One of them is well known, my gracious lord. A gross fat man, as fat as butter. Oh, the man, I do assure you, is not here. My lord, there are two gentlemen having this robbery lost. Three hundred marks. It may be so. If he have robbed these men, he shall be answerable. And so let me entreat you, leave the house. I will. Good night, my noble lord. <laughs> I think it is good morrow, is it not? Indeed, my lord. I think it be two o'clock. This oily rascal Falstaff is known as well as Paul's. <laughs> Go, call him forth. Falstaff! <laughs> Fast asleep behind the arras and snoring like a horse. <laughs> oh, hark, how hard he fetches breath. Search his pockets. Aye. What hast thou found? Mm, nothing but papers, my lord. But let's see what they be. Read them. Uh, item, a capon, two shilling and tuppence. Item, sauce, fourpence. Item, sack. Two gallons, five shillings, and a pork. <laughs> Item, anchovies and sack after supper. Two shillings and sixpence. <laughs> Item, bread, a half penny. Oh, oh, monstrous. But one half penny worth of bread to all this intolerable deal of sack. <laughs> well, what there is else, keep close. We'll read it at more advantage. There, let him sleep till day. I'll to the court in the morning, and the money shall be paid back again with advantage. We must all to the walls. Good morrow, Pines. Good morrow, good my lord. You have just heard the first part of Columbia's presentation of Henry the Fourth, starring Walter Houston, Brian Ahern, Walter Connolly, Humphrey Bogart, and Dame May Whitty. The play will continue in just a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
And now, we continue with the second part of Shakespeare's Henry IV, and again your narrator, Conway Turl, comes forward to set the scene. in arms against the royal power, Henry IV summons the Prince of Wales to appear at court. Now he enters the throne room where the king sits conferring with his generals. The animated discussion halts in midair. The nobles look askance at young Hal. His father eyes him gravely for a moment in the heavy silence which has fallen over the room. Lords, give us leave. The Prince of Wales and I must have some private conference. Be near at hand, for we shall presently have need of you. I know not whether God will have it so for some displeasing service I have done, that in his secret doom out of my blood he'll breed revengement and a scourge for me. But thou dost in thy passages of life make me believe thou art only marked for the hot vengeance and the rod of heaven to punish my mistreadings. So please, Your Majesty, I would I could quit all offenses with as clear excuse, as well as I am doubtless... I can purge myself of many I am charged with all. God pardon thee. Yet let me wonder, Harry, at thy affections, which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. Thy place in council has been rudely lost. The hopes and expectations of thy time is ruined, and the soul of every man prophetically doth what think thy fall. For thou hast lost thy princely privilege with vile participation. Not an eye, but as a weary of thy common sight, save mine. I shall hereafter, my thrice gracious lord, be more myself. For all the world as thou art to this hour was richer then when I from France set foot at Ravensburg. Mean as I was then, this hot spur now. Now by my scepter and my soul to boot, he hath more worthy interest to the state than thou, the shadow of succession. Thrice hath this hot spur, Mars in swaddling clothes, this infant warrior, in his enterprises, discomforted great Douglas, gained him once, enlarged him, and made a friend of him to fill the mouth of deep defiance up and shake the peace and safety of our throne. What say you to this? Hotspur, Northumberland, the Archbishop's Grace of York, Douglas, Mortimer, capitulate against us and are up. But wherefore do I tell these news to thee? Why, Harry, do I tell thee of my foes? which are my nearest and dearest enemy. Thou art like enough through vassal fear, base intonation and the start of spleen, to fight against me under hot spurs pay, to dog his heels and curtsy at his frowns, to show how much thou art degenerate. Oh, do not think so. You shall not find it so. And God forgive them that have so much swayed your majesty's good thoughts away from me. I will redeem all this on hot spurs head. And in the closing of some glorious day... Be bold to tell you that I am your son. And that shall be the day, whene'er it lights, that this same child of honor and renown, this gallant Hotspur, and this all-praised knight, and your unthought-of Harry, chance to meet. For every honor sitting on his helm, would they were multitudes, and on my head my shames redouble. For the time will come when I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. This, in the name of God, I promise here. And I will die a hundred thousand deaths ere break the smallest parcel of this vow. A hundred thousand rebels die in this. Thou shalt have charge and sovereign trust herein. 
Your Majesty. How now, Sir Walter Blunt? My looks are full of speed. So is the business that I come to speak of. Lord Mortimer of Scotland has sent word that Douglas and the English rebels met the 11th of this month at Shrewsbury. Huh? On Wednesday next, Harry, you shall set forward. On Thursday, we ourselves will march. Our hands are full of business. Let's away. Advantage feeds him fat while men delay. Meanwhile, in the tavern, Falstaff is awakened from his drunken stupor. He's railing at the hostess. How now, dame hostess? Have you inquired yet who picked me pocket? Aye, I warrant you. Why, the tithe of a hair was never lost in my house before. You lie, hostess. I'll be sworn my pocket was picked. Why, Sir John, do you think I keep thieves in my house? Go to, go to. You are a woman. Go. A woman? I? God's light! I was never called so in my own house before. Oh, too. I know you well enough. No, Sir John. You do not know me, Sir John. I know you, Sir John. You owe me money, Sir John. And now, you pick a quarrel to beguile me of it. I'll pay not a denier. I've lost a seal ring of my grandfather's worth 40 marks. Oh, I've heard the prince tell him I know not how often. But that ring was copper. Now, the prince is a jack, a sneak up. Splut, and he were here, I'd cudgel him like a dog, if he would say so. The prince comes! The prince! Well, comes marching down the street. Head of detachment of troops. My lord, my lord, my lord, I pray you hear me. What sayest thou, Mistress Wicklet? Prithee, let her alone and listen to me. What sayest thou, Jack? The other night I fell asleep here behind the arras and had my pocket picked. This house is turned bawdy house. They pick pockets. Uh, what didst thou lose, Jack? Wilt thou believe me, Hal? Three or four bonds of forty pounds apiece and a seal ring of my grandfather's. Oh, a trifle, some eightpenny matter. So I told him, my lord, and I said I heard your grace say so. And my lord, he speaks most vilely of you like a foul-mouthed man as he is, and said he would cudgel you. What? He did not. There's neither faith, truth, nor womanhood in me else. There's no more faith in me than in a stewed prune. Tilly, Sally. Nay, my lord, he called you Jack, and said he would cudgel you. Yea, if he said my ring was copper. Well, I say it is copper. Dost thou be as good as thy word now? Nay, and I do, I pray God, my girdle break. Charge an honest woman with picking thy pocket? Why, thou impudent, embossed rascal, if there were anything in thy pocket but taverning reckonings, memorandums of bawdy houses, oh. and one poor penny worth of sugar candy to make thee long-winded, well. if thy pocket were enriched with any other injuries but these, I am a villain. Why, art thou not ashamed? You confess, then. You picked my pocket. Well, it appears so, but story. Hostess, I forgive thee. Oh? Go. It make ready breakfast. Look to thy servant. Well. Cherish thy guest. You. Love thy husband. Well, of all Nay, nay, oh. nay. Prithee, prithee, be gone. Villain, scurvy, nay, bastard. Now, hell to the news at court. For the robbery, lad. How is that answered? Oh, my sweet beef. I must still be good angel to thee. 
The money is paid back again. I do not like that paying back. I am good friends with my father and may do anything. Rob me the exchequer the first thing thou doest. <laughs> I have procured thee, Jack, a charge of foot in this war. I would it had been of horse. Bardo! The horse, the horse, for thou and I have thirty miles to ride at dinner time. Aye, sir. Jack, Aye, meet sir. me tomorrow in the temple hall at two o'clock in the afternoon. There thou shalt know thy charge. The land is burning, huts first, hands on high, and either we or they must lower lie. <laughs> England is in arms. From every part of the, of the kingdom, soldiers march to join the civil war. The rebel troops drawn up in battle array by Hotspur are put at disadvantage by the sudden illness of Northumberland. Glendower is two weeks late recruiting his troops. Hotspur and the equally fiery Douglas are determined to go on ahead without them. Worcester and Vernon urge delayed. Throughout the night, they wrangle, pacing the dimly lighted tent. We'll fight with them tonight. It may not be. You give him an advantage. Not a whit. Why say you so? Looks he not for supply? So do we. For his is certain, ours is doubtful. Good, cousin, be advised. Stir not tonight. Do not, my lord. Vernon, you do not counsel well. You speak it out of fear and cold heart. Do me no slander, Douglas. By my life, I hold as little counsel with weak fear as you, my lord, or any Scot that this day lives. Let it be seen tomorrow in the battle which of us fears. Yea, or tonight. Content. Tonight, say I. Come, come, it may not be. I wonder much, being men of such great leading as you are, that you foresee not what impediments drag back our expedition. Your uncle Worcester's horse came but today, and now their pride and mettle is asleep. Their courage with hard labor, tame and dull. So are the horses of the enemy. The better part of ours are full of rest. The number of the king exceedeth ours. For God's sake, cousins, stay till all come in. My lord, Sir Walter Blunt. Welcome, Sir Walter Blunt. And would to God you were of our determination. The king had sent to know the nature of your griefs. And whereupon you conjure from the breast of civil peace... Such bold hostility, teaching his duteous land audacious cruelty. If that the king have any way your good deserts forgot, which he confesseth to be manifold, he bids you name your griefs, and with all speed you shall have your desires with interest, and pardon absolute for yourself and these herein misled by your suggestion. The king is kind, and well we know the king knows at what time to promise when to pay. My father and my uncle and myself did give him that same royalty he wears. But I come not to hear this. Then to the point. He deposed the king. Soon after that, deprived him of his life. And in the neck of that task, the whole state disgraced me in my happy victories. And in conclusion, drove us to seek out this head of safety. And with all to pry into his title, the which we find too indirect for long continuance. Shall I return this answer to the king? Not so, Sir Walter. We'll withdraw a while. Go to the king, and let there be impawned some surety for a safe return again. And in the morning early shall my uncle bring him our purposes. And so farewell. I would you would accept of grace and love. And maybe so we shall. Pray God you do. 
encampment, the king and the prince of Wales watched the dawn break over the field of battle. They await a messenger from the rebel camp. How bloodily the sun begins to peer above yon busky hill. The day looks pale at his distemperature, and the southern wind doth play the trumpet to his purpose, and by his hollow whistling in the leaves, foretells a tempest and a blustering day. Then with the losers let it sympathize, for nothing can seem foul to those that win. My lord of Worcester. Your majesty. And I'm my lord of Worcester. It's not well that you and I should meet upon such terms as now we meet. You have deceived our trust and made us doff our easy robes of peace to crush our old limbs in ungentle steel. This is not well, my lord. This is not well. Hear me, my liege. For mine own part, I could be well content to entertain the lag end of my life with quiet hours. But I do protest I have not sought the day of this dislike. You have not sought it? How comes it, then? It pleased your majesty to turn your looks of favor from myself and all our house. And yet I must remember you, my lord, we were the first and dearest of your friends. For you, my staff of office, did I break in Richard's time and posted day and night to meet you on the way and kiss your hand. It was myself, my brother, and his son that brought you home and boldly did out dare the dangers of the time. These things indeed have you have articulate proclaimed at market crosses, read in churches, to face the garment of rebellion of pell-mell havoc and confusion. In both your armies there is many a soul shall pay full dearly for this encounter if once they join in trial. My lord of Worcester... Tell your nephew, I, the Prince of Wales, do join with all the world in praise of him. I do not think a braver gentleman, more daring or more bold, is now alive to grace this latter age with noble deeds. For my part, I may speak it to my shame, I have a truant been to chivalry, and so I hear he doth account me too. Yet this before my father's majesty. I am content that he shall take the odds of his great name and estimation... And will, to save the blood on either side, try fortune with him in a single fight. And, Prince of Wales, so dare we venture thee, albeit considerations infinite do make against it. No good was to know. We love our people well. Even those we love that are misled upon your cousin's part. Will they take the offer of our grace? Both he and they and you. Yea, every man shall be my friend again. And I'll be his. So tell your cousin and bring me word what he will do. But if he will not yield, rebuke and dread correction wait on us. They shall do that office, so be gone. Indeed. Will not now be troubled with reply. We offer fair. Take it advisedly. While the Earl of Worcester fears that Hotspur will be influenced by the king's fair offer and determines not to repeat the message... Uncle, what news? The king will bid you battle presently. There is no seeming mercy in the king. Did you beg any? God forbid. I told him gently of our grievances. He calls us rebels, traitors, who will scourge with haughty arms this hateful name in us. The Prince of Wales stepped forth before the king, and nephew challenged you to single fight. Oh, would the quarrel lay upon our heads, and that no man might draw a short breath today, but I and Harry Monmouth, Prince of Wales. Yet once ere night I will embrace him with a soldier's arm, that he shall shrink under my courtesy. Arm, arm with speed, and fellow soldiers, friends, better consider what you have to do, than I that have not well the gift of tongue can lift your blood up with persuasion. <laughs> The Lord, prepare. The king comes on apace. Let each man do his best. And 
Here draw I a sword whose temper I intend to stain with the best blood that I can meet with all in the adventure of this perilous day. Now Esperance, proceed and set on. Sound all the lofty instruments of war and by that music it's all embraced. For heaven to earth some of us never shall for a second time in such meet at last, both bleeding, both weary, and both determined. I mistake not, thou art Harry Monmouth. Thou speakst as if I would deny my name. My name is Harry Percy. Why, then I see a very valiant rebel of the name. I am the Prince of Wales, and think not Hotspur to share with me in glory anymore. Two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, nor can one England brook a double reign of Harry Percy and the Prince of Wales. Nor shall it, Harry, for the hour is come to end the one of us, and would to God thy name and arms were now as great as mine. I'll make it greater ere I part from thee, and all the budding honors on thy crest I'll crop to make a garland for my head. Oh, I can no longer put thy vanity. Trust thee, then! <laughs> <laughs> Lies the king in the deep coma of approaching death. 
Beside him on a crimson pillow lies the crown of England. The young prince bends over his father. My gracious lord. My father. This sleep is sound indeed. This is a sleep that from this golden rigole hath divorced so many English kings. Thy due from me is tears and heavy sorrows of the blood. My due from thee is this imperial crown, which, as immediate from thy place and blood, derives itself to me. No, where it sits, which God shall guard, and put the world's whole strength into one giant arm, it shall not force this lineal honor from me. This from thee will I to mine leave, as tis left to me. The prince has gone with the crown. Now the king awakens from his coma, finds himself alone, cries out. Westman! Clarence! Does the king call? What would your majesty? How fair so grace? Why? Why did you leave me here alone, my lords? Where is the crown? Who took it from my pillow? When we withdrew, my liege, we left it here. Prince hath taken it hence. Go seek him out. Is he so hasty that he doth suppose my sleep, my death? Wherefore did he take away the crown? Lo, where he comes. Come hither to me, Harry. Depart the chamber. Leave us here alone. I never thought to hear you speak again. Thy wish was father, Harry, to that thought. Thy life did manifest thou lovest me not. And thou wilt have me die short of it. Then get thee gone and dig my grave thyself. And bid the merry bells ring to thine ear that thou art crowned. Not that I am dead. For now time is come to mock at form. Harry the Fifth is crowned. Affinity. Down royal state. All you sage counselors hence. To the English court assemble now from every region. Heaps of idleness. Now neighbor confines purge you of your scum. Have you a ruffian that will swear, drink, dance... Revel the night, rob, murder, commit the oldest sins, the newest kind of ways. Be happy. He will trouble you no more. England shall double gild his treble duke. England shall give him office, honor, might. For the fifth Harry from curb license plucks the muzzle of restraint. And the wild dog shall flesh his tooth on every innocent. Oh, my poor kingdom, sick with civil blows. Oh, there will be a wilderness again, peopled with wolves, thy old inhabitants. Oh, pardon me, my liege, but for my tears, 
the moist impediments unto my speech. I had forestalled this dear and deep rebuke. Ere you with grief had spoke, or I had heard the cause of it so far. There is your crown. And he that wears the crown immortally, long guard it yours. God witness with me when I here came in and found no cause of breath within your majesty. How oh, cold it struck my heart. If I do feign, oh, let me in my present wildness die and never live to show the incredulous world the noble change that I have purposed. Coming to look on you, thinking you dead, and dead almost, my liege, to think you were, I spake unto this crown as having sense. Accusing it, I put it on my head to try with it, as with an enemy that had before my face murdered my father, the quarrel of a true inheritor. But if it did infect my blood with joy, or swell my thoughts to any strain of pride, if any rebel or vain spirit of mine did with the least affection of a welcome give entertainment to the might of it, let God forever keep it from my head, and make me as the poorest vessel is that doth with awe and terror kneel to it. Oh, my son. Come hither, Harry, and sit thou by my bed. And here I think the very latest counsel that ever I shall breathe. God knows, my son, by what bypass and indirect crooked ways I met this crown. And I myself know well how troublesome sat upon my head. To thee it shall descend with better quiet, better opinion, better confirmation. For all the soil of the achievement goes with me into the earth. Seemed in me but as an honor snatched with boisterous hand. And I had many living to upbraid my gain of it by their assistances. Which daily grew to quarrel and to bloodshed, wounding supposed peace. Now my death changes the mood. For what in me was purchased falls upon thee in a more fairer sort. How came I by the crown? Oh, God forgive and grant it may with thee in true peace live. My gracious liege. <laughs> Pistols stand behind me. I will make the king do you grace. 
I will leer upon him if he comes by, and do but mark the countenance that he will give me. God save thy grace, King Hal, my royal Hal. Jester, I have long dreamt of such a kind of man, so surfeit-swelled, so old, and so profane, but being awake, I do despise my dream. For God doth know, so shall the world perceive, that I have turned away my former self. So will I those that kept me company. When thou dost hear I am as I have been, approach me, and thou shalt be as thou wast the tutor and the feeder of my riots. Till then I banish thee on pain of death, as I have done the rest of my misleaders, not to come near our person by ten miles. For competence of life, I will allow you that lack of means enforce you not to evil. And as we hear you to reform yourselves, we will, according to your strengths and qualities, give you advancement. Be it your charge, your justice, to keep upon the tenure of our word. Set on! industrial family that serves the nation presents the Theater Guild on the air. Our stars, Judith Anderson and Maurice Evans. 
Our play, Shakespeare's Macbeth, produced on the air tonight by the Theater Guild, one of America's foremost theatrical producers. Every day, everywhere, you are served by products of steel. In your home, in your business, in your travel. The trademark of United States Steel, USS, on any steel product is your guide to quality steel. And now, from Broadway, direct from the stage of the Vanderbilt Theater, the United States Steel Corporation brings you Macbeth. And here with a word on the play is Maurice Evans. Good evening. Macbeth, which tells of the rise and fall of a dictator, is a play that's always timely, as up to the minute as a radio news broadcast. The vivid action of Macbeth seems ready-made for radio, with a few adjustments. For example, in the original play, Banquo's ghost, when he comes to haunt Macbeth, doesn't say a word. A very impractical ghost for radio purposes. So tonight we give him words. To bring him to the microphone, we've had to do some, shall we say, ghost writing. In other words, we bring to you a Macbeth adapted to a new kind of theater, the radio theater. To appear in this broadcast with Judith Anderson is to bring back memories of Broadway and of distant Pacific Islands where we played Macbeth together. We're proud to have with us in tonight's cast Romney Brent as Malcolm, Thomas Chalmers as Macduff, and Everett Sloan as Banquo. And now the curtain rises on the Theatre Guild on the air production of Macbeth, starring Judith Anderson and Maurice Evans. That will be ere the set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath. There to meet with Macbeth. In the year 1046, a battle rages between the Scottish armies under Macbeth and the invading Norsemen. But even as Macbeth wins his glorious victory, a strange destiny awaits him. He learns of it first on his way home. He and Banquo, his faithful lieutenant, are traveling ahead to report to their king where a hero's welcome awaits them. Just now, they're riding on their way through a wild and gloomy day across a desolate heath. So foul and fair a day I have not seen. How far is to home? I do not know, sir. Which is our way? I think we should go. Stay. Foul is fair. And fair is foul. Hover through the fog and filthy <laughs> What are these creatures so withered and so wild? They look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aren't. Live you, or are you aught that man may question? 
You seem to understand me by each at once her choppy finger laying upon her skinny lips. You should be women. And yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak to me. Oh, hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, thane of blood. Oh, hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, thane of Cordor. Oh, hail, Macbeth. That shall be king hereafter. <laughs> Say, you imperfect speakers, tell me more. By Sinel's death, I know I'm thane of Dimes. <laughs> but how of Cordor? And to be king stands not within the prospect of belief. <laughs> Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence. Speak, I charge you. The earth hath bubbles as the water has, and these are of them. Whither are they vanished? Into the air. And what seemed corporal melted as breath into the wind. Would they had stayed. Were such things here as we do speak about, you shall be king. And Thane of Cordor, too, and it not so? To the selfsame tune and words. Let us toward the king, and at more time think upon what has chanced. Macbeth! Who calls? Macbeth! Banquo! How now? Who calls upon Macbeth? This is Macduff. Where are you? Macduff! In here, by the edge of the heath. Well met, Macduff. Macbeth! Fortune hath led me to thee. I come from King Duncan to greet thee on thy way. Glad to see thee. The king hath happily received, Macbeth, the news of thy success. And thick as hail, good tidings came. And every word did bear thy praises in his kingdom's great defense. The service and the loyalty I owe in doing it pays itself. Macbeth, here is my message. Turn homeward to thy castle. Our gracious king will visit thee at once. There to bestow the honors he would heap upon thy head. Honors? What do you mean? King Duncan hath proclaimed Malcolm, his son, heir to the throne. But after him shalt thou be first in the land, Macbeth. In sign whereof, he bade me from him call thee by the title, Thane of Cordor. All hail, most worthy Thane. What? Can the devil speak true? How now? Yet oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths. Win us with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequence. Really peace, good Banquo. Go you a little before. I am overcome with honors thrust upon me. I'll be with you both anon. We'll await your pleasure. Come, thanks, I come. Lambs, Cordor. Two truths are told as happy prologue to the swelling act of the imperial theme. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? I am Thane of Cordor. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? If chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stir? A letter to my wife shall be the harbinger of this great news. Come what come may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day.
met me, dearest wife, in the day of success. When I burned in desire to question them further, they made themselves air into which they vanished. As I stood, wrapped in the wonder of it, came missives from the king who all hailed me, Pain of Cordor, by which title before these weird sisters saluted me and referred me to the coming on of time with Hail King Chappie. Lay it to thy heart and farewell, thy husband. Thumbs thou art, and Cordor, and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. Wouldst not play for, and yet would wrongly win. Hide thee hither that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valor of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid that seem to have thee crowned with all. Come in. Madam. What is your tidings? The king comes here tonight. I'm mad to say it. Come not thy master first. So please you, it is true. Our thane is coming. He is now in sight upon the mountain path. You bring great news. Sit on. Aye, madam. The raven himself is horse that cloaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal force. Unsex me here. Kill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse. Let no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breast and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. Wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief, Come, thick night, and pour thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen night see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, Hold, hold! My love. Husband. My dearest wife. Great lands. Worthy Cordor. Thy letter has transported me beyond this ignorant present, and I feel now the future and the instant. My dearest love, Duncan comes here tonight. And when goes hence? Tomorrow, as he purposes. Oh, never shall sun that morrow see. Your face, my saying, is as a book where men may read strange matters. To beguile the time, look like the time. They are welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue. Look like the innocent flower. But be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for. And you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall to all our nights and days to come... Give solely sovereign sway and master them. We will speak further. Only look up clear. To all the favor ever is to fear. 
leave all the rest to me. There is his castle, my king. It has a pleasant seat. The air sweetly and nimbly recommends itself unto our gentle senses. Heaven's breath smells wooingly here. The air is delicate. Very pleasant, Your Highness. Malcolm, my son. Yes, father. Ride with me. Yes, father. My prince, when thou art king, remember this. So much I owe to him who dwelleth here that all my swiftest recompense is slow to overtake him. He is a peerless subject. Aye, sir. And his friend Banco, too, no less deserves. These shalt thou trust, and hold them to thy heart. See, our hostess comes to greet us. Oh, my king, we are at your service, all our house. Lady, give me thy hand. Conduct me to mine host. We love him highly, and are your guests tonight. Husband. Anna, what news? Duncan has almost stopped. Why have you left the chamber? Has he asked for me? No, do not. He has. We will proceed no further in this business. He hath honored me of late, and I have won golden opinions from all sorts of people, which should be worn now in their newest gloss, not cast aside so soon. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Has it slept since? And wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? From this time, such I account thy love. Art thou appear to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? Any peace. I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. What beast was it then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. I've given trust and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out. Had I so sworn as you have done to this... If we should fail! We fail? But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. Then Duncan is asleep. Where to the rather shall his day's hard journey sound invite him? His two chamberlains will I with wine and wassail, so convinced that memory, the water of the brain, shall be a fume. When in swinish sleep their drenched natures lies in a death, what cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? Bring forth men, children only, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. Will it not be received when we have marked with blood those sleepy two of his own chamber and used their very daggers that they have done? Who dares receive it, other? As we shall make our griefs and clamor roar upon his death. I am settled, and bend up each corporal agent to this terrible feat. Away and mock the time with fairest show. False face must hide, but the false heart doth know.
How goes the night, watchman? Moon is down. I've not heard the clock. There's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. Get thee to bed now. Good repose to thee. Thanks, sir. As I like to you, sir. Is this a dagger that I see before me? The handle toward my hand. Come, let me touch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet, and on thy blade and dudgeon gouts of blood which was not so before. Ach, there's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now all the one half world, nature seems dead. And wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, or it is a knell that summons thee to heaven. What a hell. My husband. I... His door is open, and the surfeited grooms do mock their charge with snores. I've drugged their possets, that death and nature do contend about them, whether they live or die. I laid their daggers ready. You cannot miss them. Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. I go, and it is done. That which hath made them drunk hath made me bold. What hath quenched them hath given me fire. Hark! The owl shrieked. The fatal bellman which gives the sterns good night is about it. Black, I'm afraid they have awaked and tis not done. The attempt and not the deed confounds us. My husband. I have done the deed. Didst thou not hear a noise? I heard the owl scream and the crickets cry. Did not you speak? When? No. As I descended. I. Ha! Who lies in the second chamber? Prince Malcolm. I thought I heard a voice cry. Sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. These deeds must not be thought out of these ways. So it will make us mad. The innocent sleep. Sleep that knits up the rattled sleeve of care. The death of each day's life. Sore labor's bath. Balm of hurt minds. Great nature's second course. Chief nourisher in life's feast. What do you mean? Still it cried, sleep no more to all the house. Clams hath murdered sleep. And therefore Cordor shall sleep no more. Macbeth shall sleep no more. Who was it that thus cried? Why, where the pain... You do unbend your noble strength to think so brain-sick of things. Go get some water and wash this filthy witness from your hands. Why did you bring these daggers from the place they must lie there? Go carry them and smear the sleepy grooms with blood. I'll go no more. I'm afraid to think what I have done. Look on it again, I dare not. Infirm of purpose. 
Give me the dagger. The sleeping and the dead are but as pictures. Tis the eye of childhood that fears a painted devil. If he do bleed, I'll gild the faces of the grooms with all. But it must seem they are guilt. Whence is that knocking? How ist with me when every noise appalls me? What hands are here? Hath they pluck out mine eyes? Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas in Carnadine, making the green one red. My hands of your color. But I shame to wear a heart so white. I hear a knocking at the south entry. Retire we to our chamber. A little water clears us of this deed. How easy is it then? Hark more knocking. Get on your nightgown, lest occasion call us and show us to be watchers. Be not lost so poorly in your thoughts. Oh, no, my deed. For best not know myself. Wake, Duncan, with thy knocking. I would thou couldst. Hello! Here's a knocking indeed. Knock, knock, knock. A man might be a porter of Hellgate's. Only this place is too cold for hell. I'll devil porter it no further. Open! No, 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 no! Well, good morrow, friend. Come in, good sirs. MacDuff and Banquo, I pray you remember the porter. Thank you. Is thy master stirring? Who's there? Our knocking has awaked him. Here he comes. Good morrow, noble Macbeth. Banquo and good Macduff, you're welcome both. We travel down less speedily than you, having less cause for hate. Is the king stirring? Not yet. He did command me to call timely on him. I will bring you to him this way. I know this is a joyful trouble to you, but yet tis one. The labor we delight in knows no pain. This is the door. I'll make so bold to call him. If you will. Well, Macbeth, how goes the world? All hail, Macbeth. No more of that. I have forgot the weird sisters. Goes the king hence today? He does. He did appoint so. The night has been unruly. Where we lay, the chimneys were blown down, and as they say, lamentings heard in the air. The obscure bird clamored the live-long night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. It was a rough night. My young remembrance cannot parallel a fellow to it. Oh, horror! 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 What's that? Come no heart cannot conceive. No name What is it? What's the matter? Confusion now has made his masterpiece. Most sacrilegious murder hath broke up the Lord's anointed temple and stole thence the life of the building. What is it you say, the life? Mean you, His Approach Majesty? Approach the chamber. Do not bid me speak. See and then speak yourself. Our royal master's murder. Oh, no. murder! Murder and treason awake! <laughs> Quick, 
quick, worthy prince, I'll help thee to thy saddle. Be thou not dainty of leave-taking, but shift the way to England. Quick, to horse. Will it not be said, good Banquo, that my so hasty going puts on me suspicion of the deed? Let it be said, so we may soon discover what plans may be afoot, and who hath done this bloody deed. The murderous shaft that shot is not yet lighted, and thy safest way is to avoid the aim. Therefore, away. If thou thinkest best. I do, for where thou art, there's daggers in men's smiles. To England, then. My separated fortune shall keep me there the safer. Fare thee well. Farewell, good Malcolm. And hail, Macbeth, thou that shalt be king. But if thou art, oh, I do greatly fear thou hast played most foully for it. The curtain has fallen on the first act of Macbeth, produced by the Theater Guild on the air and presented by the United States Steel Corporation. Now, during our intermission, here is George Hicks speaking for the United States Steel Corporation. Good evening. If I may, I would like to bring you for a moment from the days of Macbeth back to the present day. I'd like to tell you about an industry within an industry, about products vitally important to our modern civilization that are made possible by steel, and yet have no steel in them at all. Products like sulfur drugs, nylon stockings and automobile tires, fertilizers and perfumes, aspirin, novocaine, DDT, TNT, and phonograph records, to mention just a few of the thousands that might be listed. Yes, all of these products depend upon coal chemicals for modern mass production, and today a large part of the nation's supply of coal chemicals is produced by the steel industry. That's because coke is the chief fuel used to smelt iron ore in the steel industry's blast furnaces, and large quantities of coke must be produced constantly. Coke is made by processing certain types of soft coal, and when this takes place, the precious coal chemicals are released in the form of gases and tars. Years ago, these products of the coke ovens were wasted, but today they are painstakingly conserved by U.S. Steel and many other members of the steel industry. I hardly need to tell you that these coal chemicals, like steel itself, are tremendously important in war as well as in peace. In the period from January 1940 to August 1945, United States Steel alone produced in its coke ovens over 100 million tons of coke and huge quantities of benzene, toluene, and tar, the three basic coal chemicals from which other industries manufacture nearly 200,000 products. Thanks to constant research and development, we find substances that formerly went up in smoke now enriching our civilization in countless ways through the magic of modern coal chemicals. And the steadily expanding operation of this great new industry within an industry is still another very important way in which the industrial family of United States Steel is able to serve you and the entire nation. Pause now for station identification. Your station is KECA Los Angeles.
You are listening to the Theater Guild on the Air, presented by the industrial family that serves the nation, United States Steel. And now the curtain rises on the second act of Macbeth, starring Judith Anderson as Lady Macbeth and Maurice Evans as Macbeth, and featuring Romney Brandt as Malcolm, Thomas Chalmers as Macduff, and Everett Sloan as Banquo. It's a few weeks later in the Scottish Hills. Macbeth, charging Malcolm with guilt in the murder, has proclaimed himself King of Scotland and been crowned. But in the royal fortress of Dunsinane, he lives and plots uneasily. To test the loyalty of his nobles, he has summoned them now, including Banquo and Macduff, to a feast. But as he awaits their arrival, Macbeth lays plans to kill Banquo, whose too great knowledge he has begun to fear. It must be done tonight. Are you ready, both? We are, my liege. We're ready. And will you do it? We are men, my liege. Aye, in the catalogue ye go for men. We are too, whom the vile blowers and buffets of the world have so incensed that we are reckless what we do to spite the world. Your spirit shines through you. Then listen. Banquo is summoned here to Dunsinane for a feast tonight. From this high parapet you can see in yonder valley the wood of Burnham, through which he must ride hither. There, strike him down. And leave no rubs nor botches. It shall be done, my lord. We shall perform what you command. And go. Farewell, my lord. Farewell, O king. Banquo, thy soul's flight, if it find heaven, must find it out tonight. My lord. Your wife. My husband. Why do you keep alone? Of sorriest fancies your companions making. Things without all remedy should be without regard. What's done is done. We have scotched the snake, not killed it. Gentle, my lord, sleek o'er your rugged looks. Be bright and jovial among your guests tonight. So shall I love, and so I pray be you. Aye, be thou jocund. Ere the bat hath flown his cloistered flight, there shall be done a deed of dreadful note. What's to be done? Be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, till thou applaud the deed. Come, sealing night, scarf up the tender eye of pitiful day. See the light thickens, and the crow makes wing to the rocky wood. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse. Whilst night's black agents to their praise do rouse. Thou marvellest at my words, but hold thee still. Things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. Day grows dark, but thankful. Aye, Macduff. We'll be there anon. Now! Have him! Strike him down! Is he? I have him! The hell of the throw! Stab him! Macduff! I'm here! Let him go! Oh. Free him, thou villain! Let, Let him go! Help! Take their horses! Come right! Oh. Oh. Macduff! I have thee, man. Murder! Fly, Macduff! To Prince Malcolm! Who did this deed? I am slain. Whose cutthroats were they? 
that bad spot. Oh. This bloody deed I shall make known to others. Then to England. Are they all here? Husband, Macduff comes not. Wherefore? He hath sent word, not I, he says. Dares he deny his person at our bidding? Know you not why? Now again I am cabin, cribbed, confined, bound into doubts and fears. Are all the others come? All except Banquo. Then let us in. Dear love, praise Banquo. Let your remembrance present him eminence both with eye and tongue. Come. Most royal, sir. To all a hearty welcome. You know your own degrees? Sit down. Be large in mirth. Anon, we'll drink a measure the table round. Hi, Your Majesty. Here had we now our countries on a roof where the graced person of our bank will press. Whom may I rather challenge for unkindness than pity for mischance? His absence, sir, lays blame upon his promise. Please, Your Highness, to grace us with your royal company. Why, the... The table's full. Here is a place reserved, sir. Where? Hear me, good lord. Oh, Macbeth. Which of you have done this? What, good sir? What is it, husband? Here is a place reserved. Prithee be seated. Oh, that shall be king. Thou canst not say I did it. Ever shake my gory locks at me. Gentlemen, please. His Highness is not well. Sit worthy, friends. My lord is often thus and hath been from his youth. Pray you keep seat. The fit is momentary. If much you note him, you shall offend him and extend his passion. Feed and regard him not. My lord, a word with you. Are you a man? I am a bold one that dare look on that which might appall the devil. Oh, proper stuff. This is the very painting of your fear. This is the air-drawn dagger which you said led you to Duncan. Oh, these flaws and starts, impostors of true fear, would well become a woman's story at a winter's fire authorized by her granddam. Shame itself. Why do you make such faces? When all's done, you look but on us too. If I stand here, I saw him. Thank spirit. Try for shame. Blood has been shed ere now in the olden time, I and since too. Murders have been performed too terrible for the year. The time has been that when the brains were out, the man would die and there an end. But now they rise again with twenty mortal murders on their crowns to push us from our stools and raise rebellion. This is more strange than such a murder is. My worthy lord, your noble friends do lack you. I do forget. Do not... Do not muse at me, my most worthy friends. I have a strange infirmity which is nothing to those that know me. Come, love and health to all. Give me some wine. Fill full. I drink to the general joy of the whole table and to our dear friend Banquo. Would he were here. To all and him we'll drink. Good friends, a toast. Oh. A vault and quit my sight, let the earth hide thee. Thy blood is cold, begone. My lord, you have displaced the mirth. 
broke the good meeting with most admired disorder. Can you behold such sights and keep the natural ruby of your cheeks when mine is blanched with fear? What sights, my lord? I pray you, friends, speak not. He grows worse and worse. Question enrages him. At once, good night. Stand not upon the order of your going with the court once. Good night. Let a help attend your majesty. Good night. Husband, I pray thee... It will have blood. They say blood will have blood. I am in blood stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go on. You lack the season of all natures. Sleep. Come, we'll to sleep. But on the morrow and betimes I will to the weird sisters. More shall they speak. For now I am bent to know by the worst means, the worst. For mine own good, all causes shall give way. About the cauldron go in the poison entrails throw. Lizard leg. Toe of a frog. Baboon's blood. And tongue of dog. And owl's wing. Five snake in the cauldron boil and bake. Double, double toil and trouble. I am burn and cauldron bubble. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Oh, no, you secret black and midnight hags. What is to do? A deed without a name. I conjure you by that which you profess. However you came to know it, answer me to what I ask. Speak, demand. We'll answer. Say if thou strive hear it from our mouth or from our mistress. Call her. Let me see her. What is this that rises like a shadow? Speak not. She knows thy thoughts. Macbeth, Macbeth, beware, Macduff, beware the pain of fight, and not... Whatever thou wert for thy good caution, thanks, thou hast harped my fear aright, and so, Macduff, I... But again... Be bloody, bold, and resolute, laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. And live, Macduff, what need I fear of thee? But yet I'll make assurance double sure. Thou shalt not live, Macduff, that I may tell pale-hearted fear it lies and sleep in spite of thunder. Again! He lie a metal proud and take no care who chase, who threat, or where conspirers are. Macbeth shall never vanquish thee until great Burnham Wood to high Dunstanane Hill shall come against him. That shall never be. Who can enlist the forest, bid the tree unfix his earthbound root? Sweet movement's good. Rebellion's head rise never till the wood of Burnham rise. And our high-placed Macbeth shall live the lease of nature. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Gone as before, melted into the wind, 
Infected be the air whereon they ride. Who's there? Your Majesty. Who is? Your Majesty, I'll bring you word from Dunsinane. What is thy message? The Queen sends word, my lord. What word? Speak, man. There's news, sir, that Macduff and other nobles, too, have fled to England. To England? Aye, to Prince Malcolm. Time thou anticipates my dread exploits. Fear, Macduff. The castle of Macduff I will surprise. Give to the edge of the sword all souls who trace him from his line. No boasting like a fool. This deed I'll do before the purpose cool. Worthy Macduff, welcome to England. My lord. How does my Scotland? It bleeds, good prince. It sinks beneath the yoke. Each day a gash is added to her wound. The last poor country. Good sir, your eye in Scotland would create soldiers. Make our women fight to doff their dire distresses. If I take up war against this tyrant, will not my bleeding land suffer yet more from our success? Lord, as I rode to join you, word overtook me that this bloody king, whose sole name blisters my tongue, hath late surprised my castle. And my wife and babe, savagely slaughtered. Merciful heaven. What can I say to cure such deadly grief? Say nothing. Only come and let us make medicine of revenge. Front to front, bring thou this fiend of Scotland and myself. Within my sword link, set him. If he escape, let heaven forgive him. Thou will come. What I am is thine and my poor country's to command. Our power is ready. Receive what cheer you may. The night is long that never finds the day. The curtain has fallen on the second act of Macbeth, produced by the Theatre Guild on the air and presented by the United States Steel Corporation. During the intermission, here again is George Hicks speaking for United States Steel. When we hear a story of kings and queens like that of Macbeth, we usually think of great and impressive castles filled with pomp and luxury. We don't realize that those castles were primarily designed as forts rather than homes. They were gloomy, cold, drafty, and thoroughly uncomfortable. In fact, the home you're sitting in tonight would be unbelievably luxurious even to a king of Macbeth's time. Naturally, changing social conditions have had a lot to do with this. We no longer have to build our homes for protection against murderous attack by the private armies of our next-door neighbors. But just as important have been the tremendous technical developments of steel and steel products, which serve you in a thousand ways, from the steel reinforcements in the foundation of your home to the steel springs in your easy chair and the steel parts in your radio. And today, steel is making possible still another step in the building of better homes. The American Bridge Company, one of the members of the United States Steel family, is working on a great new housing development, Peter Cooper Village here in New York. American Bridge Company is erecting for the builders the steel frameworks for 21 buildings, each 15 stories high. When completed, they will be among the world's most comfortable and modern apartment houses. Peter Cooper Village will provide bright new homes for about 10,000 people. This would not be possible without steel. 
Without immensely strong structural or reinforcing steel, no practical building could rise economically above five or six stories. And, of course, steel plays an essential part in our modern elevators, too. Because of steel, Peter Cooper Village, the Empire State Building, and the home you hope to have can be facts, not just dreams. Because of steel, America is a land of homes and buildings which make the castles of ancient kings seem insignificant. Helping to create that steel and erect those buildings is part of the task of the industrial family that serves the nation, United States Steel. You are listening to the Theater Guild on the Air, presented by the United States Steel Corporation. And now the curtain rises on the third act of Macbeth, starring Judith Anderson and Maurice Evans, and featuring Romney Brent, Thomas Chalmers, and Everett Sloan. In Dunsinane Castle, high in the hills, Macbeth prepares to make his stand. Meanwhile, the doctor at the castle has learned of some strange symptoms shown by Lady Macbeth as reported to him by her lady-in-waiting. It is night at Dunsinane. When was it she last walked? I cannot say, doctor. A great perturbation in nature to receive at once the benefit of sleep and do the effects of watching. Lo, here she comes. This is her very guide. Fast asleep. How came she by that light? Why, it stood by her. She has light by her continually. Tis her command. Her eyes are open. Aye, but their sense is shut. What is it she does now? Look how she rubs her hands. It is an accustomed action with her to seem, thus washing her hands. I've known her continue in this a quarter of an hour. Yet here's a spot. Hark, she speaks. I will set down what comes from her. Out, damn spot. Out, I say. Who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? Do you mark that? Thane of Fife had a wife. Where is she now? What will these hands ne'er be clean? No more of that, my lord. No more of that. You mar all with this starting. Go to, go to. You have known what you should not. She has spoke what she should not. I'm sure of that. Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh. What a sigh is there. Her heart is sorely charged. Wash your hands. Put on your nightgown. Look not so pale. Tell you yet again. Banquo's buried. He cannot come out on his grave. Even so. To bed. To bed. 
knocking at the gate. Come, come, come. Come, give me your hand. What's done cannot be undone. she go now to bed? Directly. God. God forgive us all. This is beyond my practice. Friends, I hope the days are near at hand when homes will be safe again. We doubt it nothing. What say the reports, Macduff? Out of the tyrant. Great Dunsinane, he's strongly fortified. Some say he's mad. Others that lesser hate him do call it valiant fury. <laughs> now does he feel his secret murders sticking on his hands. So we have had report of many new revolts. Of many in Scotland who would join their forces with us. Send them word to meet us at Burnham Wood. Make we our march towards Burnham. Bring me no more of thoughts. Let them fly all. Till Burnham would remove to Dunsinane, I cannot taint with fear. What? Sir, there is ten thousand. Geese, villain. Soldiers, sir. Prince Malcolm's force, so please you. The devil damn thee, black, thou cream-faced loom. Take thy face hence. Yes, Lord. What's the boy, Malcolm? Was he not born of woman? Fear not, Macbeth. No man of woman born shall e'er have power upon thee. I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. What wood is this we enter? The wood of Burnham. Let every soldier cut him down a bough and bear it before him. Thereby shall we shadow the number of our force. It shall be done. Doctor, how does your patient? Not so sick, my lord, as she is troubled with thick-coming fancies that keep her from her rest. Cure her of that. Come in, put on my armor. It is not yet needed, sir. Put it on. At once, my liege. Canst thou not minister to a mind disease, doctor? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain. And with some sweet, oblivious antidote... Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Therein the patient must minister to himself. Throw medicine to the dogs, I'll none of it. Hurry, man. Aye, sir. Your answer. Doctor, if thou canst purge my land and bring it to a sound and pristine health, I would applaud thee to the very echo. Pull that, I say. What rhubarb, senna, or what purgative drug could scour these rebels hence? Here's two of them. My lord, I... What was that? It was the cry of a woman, my good lord. I've almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek. I have supped full with horrors. My lord! Wherefore was that cry? The queen, my lord, 
I don't understand. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. My lord. Now come to use thy tongue, thy story quickly. Gracious, my lord, I should report that which I say I saw, but know not how to do it. Well, say, sir. As I did stand my watch upon the wall, I looked toward Burnham, and anon me thought the wood began to move. Liar and slave! Let me endure your wrath, if be not so. Within this three mile, may you see it coming. I say a moving grove. If thou speaks false, upon the next tree shalt thou hang alive till famine cling thee. Fear not till Burnham Wood do come to Dunsinane. And now, a wood comes towards Dunsinane. Arm, arm, and out! If this which he avouches disappear, there is not flying hence, nor tarrying here. I begin to be a weary of the sun, and wish the estate of the world were now undone. Ring the alarm bell! Low wind! Come, wreck! At least we'll die with harness on our back! I still they come, and let them come. Beard to beard, we'll beat them backward home. Fire and show thy face. Tough. Of all men else, I've avoided thee, but get thee back. I bear a charm in life which will not yield to one of woman born. Spare thy charm, Macbeth, and let the angel whom thou still hast heard tell thee that I, Macduff, was from my mother's womb, untimely ripped. Curse me, my tongue that tells me. Shall I not yield? Lay on, Macduff, and damn be he who first cries hold. Enough! I don't... Ah! King of Scotland. Hail, King of Scotland! Hail, King of Scotland! For so thou art, good Malcolm, behold where lies the usurper's cursed head. The time is free. We shall not spend a large expense of time before we reckon with your several loves that make us even with you. My thanes and kinsmen, henceforth be earls. The first that ever Scotland in such an honor name. Now let the trumpet speak. Give them all breath in clamorous farewell to blood and death.
The curtain has fallen on the Theater Guild on the Air production of Shakespeare's Macbeth, sponsored by the United States Steel Corporation, starring Judith Anderson as Lady Macbeth and Maurice Evans as Macbeth, and featuring Romney Brent, Thomas Chalmers, and Everett Sloan. Other members of our cast included Wesley Addy, Alfred Shirley, Donald MacDonald, Chester Stratton, James Monks, Ted DeCorsia, and Gina Mallow. And here is Roger Pryor with a word about next week's play. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, the Theater Guild on the Air brings you the psychological melodrama Uncle Harry by Thomas Job. Our stars are Paul Henreid and Geraldine Fitzgerald, deservedly popular on both the stage and in motion pictures. Featured with Paul Henreid and Geraldine Fitzgerald will be Mildred Dunnock. So be with us next week for the Theater Guild on the Air production of Uncle Harry. Remember, next week, Paul Henreid and... Geraldine Fitzgerald in Uncle Henry. And remember, too, that the trademark of United States Steel, USS, on any steel product is your guide to quality steel. The Theater Guild on the Air is under the supervision of Teresa Helburn and Lawrence Langner with Homer Fickett, director, Carol Irvin, production executive, and our minor marshal executive director of the radio department. Music was composed and conducted by Harold Levy, and the play was adapted by Eric Barnold. Judith Anderson is currently appearing in the United Artists production of The Red House. Because of other commitments, Basil Rathbone, who was to be with our cast tonight, could not appear. Your announcer is Norman Brokenshire. The United States Steel Corporation hopes that you'll be with us next Sunday at the same time. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. The Columbia Network presents William Shakespeare's historical drama, Henry IV. Monday night and another imposing list of actors from stage and screen join Columbia to bring you the seventh in a cycle of eight Shakespearean plays. Tonight's production, Henry IV has been uniquely treated in that the special full-hour adaptation for radio combined both part one and part two of this great historical play, thus making an even more memorable radio occasion for millions of listeners. In tonight's performance of Henry IV, you will hear Walter Houston featured in the title role, Ryan Ahern as the Prince of Wales, Walter Connolly as Sir John Falstaff, Humphrey Bogart as Hotspur, son of the Earl of Northumberland, and Dame May Whitty as Mrs. Quickly, the hostess. The brilliant supporting cast is headed by Ben Webster as Westmoreland, Ian McLaren as Worcester, Patrick J. Kelly as Sir Walter Blunt, Eric Snowden as Northumberland, and Jack Smart as Poyne. Conway Turrell, distinguished actor of stage and screen, will come forward in just a moment as narrator to set the stage for the first scene. Meantime, Victor Bay, Columbia's talented young conductor, raises his baton to lead the orchestra in the musical introduction to Henry IV. 
and to be feared. Our house, my sovereign liege, little deserves the scourge of greatness to be used on it. And that same greatness, too, which our own hands have helped to make so portly. Whose figure be gone, for I do see danger and disobedience in thine eye. You have good leave to leave us. And we need your use and counsel, we shall send for you. The Lord. Dumbledore, you are about to speak. Yea, my good Lord. These prisoners in your highness' name demanded, which Hotspur here at Holmden took, were, as he says, not with such strength denied as is delivered to your majesty. Either envy, therefore, or Miss Prisham is guilty of this fault, and not my son. My liege, I did deny no prisoners, but I remember when the fight was done, when I was dry with rage and extreme toil, breathless and faint, leaning upon my sword, came there a certain lord, neat and trimly dressed, fresh as a bridegroom, his chin new reaped. With many a holiday and lady terms, he questioned me. Amongst the rest, demanded my prisoners in your majesty's behalf. I then, all smarting with my wounds being cold, answered, neglectingly, I know not what he should, or he should not. But it made me mad to see him shine so brisk, and smell so sweet, and talk so like a waiting gentlewoman of guns and drums and wounds. God save the mark, I answered indirectly, as I said. And I beseech you, let not his report come current for an accusation betwixt my love and your high majesty. Why, yet you do deny your prisoners, but with proviso an exception that we at our own charge shall ransom your brother-in-law, the foolish Mortimer. Shall our coffers then be empty to redeem a traitor home? No, on the barren mountains let him starve, but I shall never hold that man my friend whose tongue shall ask me for one penny cost to ransom home revolted Mortimer. Revolted Mortimer? He never did fall off my sovereign liege, but for the chance of war. Thou is belie him, Hosper. Thou is belie him. Thou art ashamed. Sarah, henceforth, let me not hear you speak of Mortimer. Send me your prisoners with the speediest means, or you shall hear in such kind from me as will displease you. Lord Northumberland, we license your departure with your son. Send us your prisoners. Or you'll hear of it. Your Majesty, your Majesty, your Majesty, your Majesty. And if the devil come and roar for them, I will not send them. I will ask to straight and tell him so. What? Drunk with collar. Stay and pause a while. Here comes your uncle, Worcester. Who struck this heat up after I was gone? He will, forsooth, have all my prisoners. Well, I urge the ransom once again of my wife's brother, and his cheek looked pale. And on my face he turned an eye of death. I cannot blame him. Was not Mortimer proclaimed by Richard that dead is the next of blood? He was. I heard the proclamation. Ah, but soft, I pray you. Did King Richard then proclaim my brother Edmund Mortimer heir to the crown? He did. Myself did hear it. Nay, then I cannot blame his cousin King that wished him on the barren mountain starve. Or shall it for shame be spoken in these days, or fill up chronicles in time to come, that men of your nobility and power did gauge them both in an unjust behalf, as both of you, God pardon it, have done, to put down Richard, that sweet, lovely rose, and plant this thorn, this canker, Bolingbroke? Good cousin, give me audience for a while. Those same noble Scots that are your prisoners? I'll keep them all. By God, he shall not have a scot of them. I'll keep them by this hand. Yeah, well, kinsman, I'll talk to you and your better temper to attend. Well, I've done, you faith. Then once more to your Scottish prisoners. Deliver them up without their ransom straight. And make the Douglas son your only mean for powers in Scotland. 
You, my lord, Northumberland, your son in Scotland being thus employed, shall secretly into the bosom creep of that same noble prelate, well-beloved, the Archbishop of York. Is not true who bears hard his brother's death at Bristol, the Lord Scroop. I smell it upon my life. It will do well. Before the game's afoot, thou still let'st slip. I cannot choose but be a noble plot. And then the power of Scotland and of York to join with Mortimer, eh? And so they shall. And tis no little reason bids us speed to save our heads by raising of a head. The king will always think him in our debt. If he hath found a time to pay us home, and see already how he doth begin to make us strangers to his looks of love. Aye, he does, he does. We'll be revenged on him. <laughs> family plot to overthrow Henry IV. And while the king's fate hangs in the balance, the Prince of Wales sits idly in his favorite tavern, talking idly with his favorite companion, Fat John Falstaff. Now, Hal, what time of day is it, lad? What the devil has thou to do with the time of the day, unless ours were cups of sack and clocks the tongues of boards? <laughs> I see no reason why thou shouldst be so superfluous to demand the time of day. Indeed, you come near me now, Hal. <laughs> ah, well, we that take purses go by the moon. Yea, governed as the sea is by the moon. Now in as low ebb as the foot of the ladder, and by and by in as high a flow as the ridge of the gallows. Oh, thou hast the most unsavory similes. <laughs> Sweet wag, when thou art king, do not hang a thief. No, thou shalt. Shall I? Oh, rare. By the Lord, I'll be a brave judge. Ah, thou judges false already. I mean thou shalt have the hanging of the thieves, and so become a rare hangman. Oh, thy quips and thy quiddities. Oh, thou hast a damnable iteration. Thou art able to corrupt a saint. Thou hast done much harm upon me, Hal. Why, thou stuffed coat bag of guts. God forgive thee for it, Hal. But I must give over this life. And I will give it over. By the Lord that I do not, I'm a villain. I'll be damned for never a king's son in Christmas. Thou swollen parcel of dropsies, where shall we take a purse tomorrow? Sounds where thou wilt. Ah, thou old bearded Satan. <laughs> I see a good amendment of life in thee, from praying to purse-taking. Why, hell, tis my vocation. Hell, tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation. <laughs> ah, good morrow, sweet hell. Good morrow, point. <laughs> what says Sir John Sack and Sugar? I'm as melancholy as a jib cat. <laughs> My lads, tomorrow morning early at East Cheap, there are traders riding to London with fat purses. If you will go, I will stuff your purses. If you will not, carry it home and be hanged. Hell, wilt thou make one? Oh, I, Rob? I, a thief? Not I, by my faith. Thou comest not at the blood royal if thou darest not. I'll carry it home. By the Lord, I'll be a traitor then when thou art king. I care not. Oh... If men were to be saved by merit, what hole in hell? Sir John, Sir John, I pray thee, leave the prince and me alone. I will lay him down such reasons for this adventure that he shall go. Well, God give thee the spirit of persuasion. Farewell. You shall find me in East Cheap. Now, be good, sweet honey lord, ride with us tomorrow. I have a jest to execute that I cannot manage alone. Falstaff, Bardolph, Peter, and Catsill shall rob these men. And when they have... 
persuades the Prince of Wales to share in a practical joke on Falstaff and the other thieves. While the latter are robbing the caravan of merchants, the Prince and Poins will slip away, return in new disguises, and rob the thieves of their booty. The next night, Poins and the Prince join the outlaws on the highway. Poins has hidden Falstaff's horse as Sir John is tumbling about in the dark. Poins! Poins in the hand! Peace, you fat kidnid rascal. What a brawling dost thou keep? How? Aye. Sweet prince, where's Poins? He has walked up to the top of the hill. Oh, I am accursed to rob in that thief's company. The rascal hath removed my horse and tied him I know not where. Poins! A plague upon you! Part off! Pedo! I'll starve there, I'll rob a foot further. Hal, eight yards of ungry even ground is threescore and ten miles a foot with me. And the stony-hearted villains know it very well. Plague upon it when thieves cannot be true to one another. A plague upon you all! Give me my horse, you rogues! Give me my horse and be hanged! Peace, you fat guts! Lie down. Lay thine ear close to the ground, and list if thou canst hear the tread of travellers. Have you any levers to lift me up again, being down? I prithee, good Prince Hal, help me to my horse, good king's son. Out, you rogue. Shall I be your ostler? Thou go hang thyself in thine own air apparent garters. If I be pain, I'll teach for this. And I have not ballads made on you all and sung to filthy tunes... Let a cup of sack be my poison. My lord, my lord. Give me my horse. Peace. Desvado, what news? On with your visors. There's money of the king's coming down the hill. Tis going to the king's exchequer. You lie, you rogue. Tis going to the king's tavern. Vado. Aye. Pito. Aye. Getzel. Aye. Falstaff. Aye. Sirs, you four shall front them in the narrow lane. Poins and I will walk lower. If they escape from your encounters, then they light on us. How many be there of them? Some eight or ten. Ooh, Will they not rob us? What? A coward, Sir John Paunch? Indeed, I am not John of Gaunt, your grandfather, but yet no coward, Hal. Well, we'll leave that to the proof. Farewell, and stand fast. Come, neighbor. The boy shall lead us horse is down the hill. We'll walk a foot a while and ease our legs. Stand, stand, down with it. Cut the villain's throat. Oh, we are undone. Ye gore knaves, are ye undone? Ah, down with them. Oh, God of mercy. Start off, find them. Oh, bless us, bless us. Oh, caterpillars, bacon-fed knaves. That's you. Please them, please them. Aye. Oh, oh. Ye fat chuffs. I would you had your store on here. Oh, bless us, bless us. What, ye knaves? Young men must live. Now, on, Bacon. Oh, on. Point. Point. The thieves have bound the true men. Now, could thou and I rob the thieves and go merrily to London? It would be argument for a week, laughter for a month, and a good jest forever. <laughs> Where are our disguises? Hard by. Stand close, I hear them coming. <laughs> 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 Let 
let us share, and then to horse before day. Aye, aye. And the prince and points be not two arrant cowards, there's no equity stirring. Aye. There's no more valor in that point than in a wild duck. No. <laughs> Here. Here. Gosh, with much ease. <laughs> now, merrily the horse. The thieves are all scattered and possessed with fear. <laughs> Falstaff sweats to death and lards the lean earth as he walks along. <laughs> Were it not for laughing, I should pity him. <laughs> Away, good boy. <laughs> How the rogue roared. <laughs> and poems now return to the tavern. Shortly after their arrival, Paul stuck at his companions burst into the room. Old Sir John is puffing and blowing with rage. Welcome, Jack. Welcome. Where's the bean? A plague of all cowards, I think. Give me a cup of sack. Oh, no. Wool sack? A king's son. If I do not beat thee out of thy kingdom with a dagger of laugh, and drive all thy subjects before thee like a flock of wild geese. I'll never wear hair on my face more. You, Prince of Wales. Why, you plague of a round man, what's the matter? Are you not a coward? Answer me that. And points there. Zounds, you fat paunch, and you call me coward, but the Lord I'll stab thee. I call thee coward. I'll see thee damned or I call thee coward. But I'd give a thousand pounds I could run as fast as thou canst. Give me a cup of sack. I'm a rogue if I drunk today. Oh, villain. Thy lips are scarce white since thou drunkest last. All's one for that. Plague of all cowards. Still, say I. Why, what's the matter? What's the matter? There be four of us here have taken a thousand pounds this day morning. Where is it, Jack? Where is it? Where is it? Taken from us it is. A hundred upon poor four of us. What? A hundred men? I am a rogue if I were not at half-swords with a dozen of them two hours together. Oh, oh I've escaped by miracle. I'm eight times thrust through the doublet, four through the hose, my buckler cut through and through, my sword hacked like a handsaw. I never dealt better since I was a man. All would not do. A plague of all power. <laughs> Let them speak. If they speak more or less than truth, they are villains and the sons of darkness. Speak, sirs. How was it? We four set upon some dozen. Sixteen at least. And bound them. No, no, they were not bound. You rogue, they were bound. Every man of them. As we were sharing, some six or seven fresh men set upon us. And unbound the rest. And then came in the other. What? Fought you with them all? All. I know not what you call all. But if I fought not with 50 of them, I'm a bunch of ready. <laughs> Pray God you've not murdered some of them. Nay, that's past praying for. I've peppered two of them. Two I'm sure I've paid. Two rogues in Buckram's shoe. <laughs> I tell thee what, Hal. If I tell thee a lie, spit in me face. Call me horse. Four rogues in Buckram let drive at me. Four, thou saidst, but two. Four, Hal, I told thee four. I, I, he said four. These four came all afront and mainly thrust at me. 
I made me no more ado about that, but took all their seven points in my target. The seven? Why, there were but four even now in Buckram. I have four in Buckram suits. Seven? Why, these hills. Or I'm a villain else. <laughs> oh, pretty, let him alone. We shall have more anon. <laughs> Dost thou hear me, Hal? Aye, and mark me too, Jack. I'll do so, for it's worth the listening to. These nine men in Buckram that I told you of... <laughs> Two more already! ...began to give me ground. But I followed so close, came in foot in hand, and with the thought seven of the eleven, I paid. Oh, monstrous! <laughs> eleven Buckram men grown out of two. But as the devil would have it, three misbegotten knaves in Kendall Green came at my back and let drive at me. For it was so dark, Hal, thou couldst not see thy hand. Why, how couldst thou know these men in Kendall Green? But eh? it was so dark, thou couldst not see thy hand. <laughs> I'll no longer be guilty of this sin. <laughs> this sanguine oh. coward, this bed-presser, this horseback-breaker, this huge hill of... Oh, <laughs> you starveling, you eel skin, you dried neat tongue, you stumpfish. Oh, 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 for breath. To wonder what is likely. Well, breathe a while and then to it again. <laughs> and when thou hast tired thyself in base comparison, hear me speak but this. Mark, Jack. We two saw you four set on to and bound them and were masters of their wealth. Mark now how a plain tale shall put you down. Then did we two set on you four and with a word out faced you from your prize and have it. Oh. Yea, and can show it you here in the house. And false stuff, you carried your guts away as nimbly and with as quick dexterity and roared for mercy and still ran and roared as ever I heard bull calf. <laughs> Why, what a slave art thou to heck thy sword as thou hast done and then say it was in fight. <laughs> what trick canst thou now find out to hide thee from this open and apparent shame? Come, let's hear, Jack. What trick hast thou now? Oh, by the Lord. I knew ye as well as he that made. Oh! <laughs> Why, hear ye, me masters. Was it for me to kill the heir apparent? Should I turn upon the true prince? No, no, no. But by the Lord, lads, I'm glad you have the money. Hostess, clap to the doors. Watch tonight. Pray tomorrow. Gallants, lads, boys, hearts of gold. All the titles of good fellowship come to you. Oh, my lord, the prince. Oh, no, my lady, the hostess. My lord, there is a nobleman of the court and door would speak with you. He says he comes from your father. Well, give him as much as will make him a royal man and send him back again to my father. Hal, shall I give him his answer? Oh, pretty do, Jack. Hey, then I'll send him packing. Hey, Peto, tell me now in earnest, how came Falstaff's sword so hacked? Why, he hacked it with his dagger and said he would make you believe it was done in fight and persuaded us to do the like. Oh. <laughs> Here comes Jack. Here comes Barebone. Oh, now, my sweet creature of Bombus. There's villainous news abroad. Here was Sir John Bracy come from your father. You must to the court in the morning. That same mad fellow of the north, Hotspur, and that sprightly Scot of Scots, Douglas, and Worcester is stolen away tonight. Thy father's beard is turned white with the news. Tell me, Hal, art not thou horribly afeard? Thou being heir apparent, could the world pick thee out three such enemies? Art thou not horribly afeard? Not a whit. 
I lack some of thy instinct. Oh, my lord, my lord, the sheriff of the most monstrous watches of the door. They're come to search the house. Dost thou hear, Hal? If you will deny the sheriff, so. If not, let him enter. <laughs> Go, hide thee behind the arras, Jack. Call in the sheriff. Sheriff? My lord. Now, Master Sheriff, what is your will with me? First, pardon me, my lord. Are you and Cry have followed certain men unto this house? What men? One of them is well known, my gracious lord. A gross fat man, as fat as butter. Oh, the man, I do assure you, is not here. My lord, there are two gentlemen having this robbery lost. Three hundred marks. It may be so. If he have robbed these men, he shall be answerable. And so let me entreat you, leave the house. I will. Good night, my noble lord. <laughs> I think it is good morrow, is it not? Indeed, my lord. I think it be two o'clock. This oily rascal Falstaff is known as well as Paul's. <laughs> Go, call him Paul. Falstaff! Fast <laughs> asleep behind the arras and snoring like a horse. Oh, hark, how hard he fetches breath. Search his pockets. I... What hast thou found? Mm, nothing but papers, my lord, but let's see what they be. Read them. Uh, item, a capon, two shilling and tuppence. Item, sauce, fourpence. Item, sack, two gallons, five shillings, maple. <laughs> item, anchovies and sack after supper, two shilling and sixpence. <laughs> item, bread, a half penny. Oh, oh, monstrous. But one half penny worth of bread to all this intolerable deal of sack. <laughs> well, what there is else, keep close. We'll read it at more advantage. There, let him sleep till day. I'll to the court in the morning, and the money shall be paid back again with advantage. We must all to the wars. Good morrow, Pines. Good morrow, good my lord. <laughs> second part of Shakespeare's Henry IV, and again your narrator Conway Toll comes forward to set the scene. With the rebels in arms against the royal power, Henry IV summons the Prince of Wales to appear at court. Now he enters the throne room where the king sits conferring with his generals. The animated discussion halts in midair. The nobles look askance at young Hal. His father eyes him gravely for a moment in the heavy silence which has fallen over the room. Lords, give us leave. The Prince of Wales and I must have some private conference. But be near at hand, for we shall presently have need of you. I know not whether God will have it so for some displeasing service I have done. That in his secret doom, out of my blood, he'll breed revengement and a scourge for me. 
But thou dost in thy passages of life make me believe thou art only marked for the hot vengeance and the rod of heaven to punish my mistreading. So please, Your Majesty, I would I could quit all offenses with as clear excuse, as well as I am doubtless, I can purge myself of many I am charged with all. God pardon thee. Yet let me wonder, Harry, at thy affections, which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. Thy place in council has been rudely lost. The hopes and expectations of thy time is ruined, and the soul of every man prophetically doth forthink thy fall. For thou hast lost thy princely privilege with vile participation. Not an eye, but as a weary of thy common sight, save mine. I shall hereafter, my thrice gracious lord, be more myself. All the world as thou art to this hour was richer then when I from France set foot at Ravensburg. Mean as I was then, is hot spur now. Now by my scepter and my soul to boot, he hath more worthy interest to the state than thou, the shadow of succession. Thrice hath this hot spur, Mars in swaffling clothes, this infant warrior in his enterprises discomfited great Douglas, gained him once, enlarged him and made a friend of him to fill the mouth of deep defiance up and shake the peace and safety of our throne. What say you to this? Hotspur, Northumberland, the Archbishop's Grace of York, Douglas, Mortimer, capitulate against us and are up. But wherefore do I tell these news to thee? Why, Harry, do I tell thee of my foes, which are my nearest and dearest enemy? Thou art like enough through facile fear, base intonation and the start of spleen, to fight against me under Hotspur's pay, to dog his heels and curtsy at his frowns. To show how much thou art degenerate. Oh, do not think so. You shall not find it so. And God forgive them that have so much swayed your majesty's good thoughts away from me. I will redeem all this on Hotspur's head. And in the closing of some glorious day, be bold to tell you that I am your son. And that shall be the day, whene'er it lights, that this same child of honor and renown, this gallant Hotspur, and this all-praised knight, and your unthought-of Harry chance to meet. For every honor sitting on his helm would they were multitudes, and on my head my shames redouble. For the time will come when I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. This in the name of God I promise here, and I will die a hundred thousand deaths ere break the smallest parcel of this vow. A hundred thousand rebels die in this Thou shalt have charge and sovereign trust herein. Your Majesty! How now, Sir Walter Blunt? Thy looks are full of speed. So is the business that I come to speak of. Lord Mortimer of Scotland hath sent word that Douglas and the English rebels met the 11th of this month at Shrewsbury. Huh? On Wednesday next, Harry, you shall set forward. On Thursday we ourselves will march. Our hands are full of business. Let's away. Advantage feeds him fat while men delay. Meanwhile, in the tavern, Falstaff is awakened from his drunken stupor. He's railing at the hostess. How now, dame hostess? Have you inquired yet who picked my pocket? Aye, I warrant you. Why, the tithe of a hair was never lost in my house before. You lie, hostess. I'll be sworn my pocket was picked. Why, Sir John, 
Do you think I keep thieves in my house? Go to, go to. You are a woman. Go. A woman? I? God's light. I was never called so in my own house before. Go to. I know you well enough. No, Sir John. You do not know me, Sir John. I know you, Sir John. You owe me money, Sir John. Now, you pick a quarrel to beguile me of it. I'll pay not a denier. I've lost a seal ring of my grandfather's worth 40 marks. Oh, I've heard the prince tell him I know not how often. But that ring was copper. Now, the prince is a jack, a sneaker. Blood, and he were here, I'd cuddle him like a dog, if he would say so. The prince comes! The prince! Well, comes marching down the street, head of detachment of troops. My lord, my lord, my lord, I pray you hear me. What sayest thou, Mistress Wicklet? Prithee, let her alone and listen to me. What sayest thou, Jack? The other night I fell asleep here behind the arras and had my pocket picked. This house is turned bawdy house. They pick pockets. Why, what didst thou lose, Jack? Wilt thou believe me, Hal? Three or four bonds of forty pounds apiece and a seal ring of my grandfather's. Oh, a trifle, some eightpenny matter. So I told you, my lord, and I said I heard your grace say so. And my lord, he speaks most vilely of you like a foul-mouthed man as he is, and said he would cudgel you. What? He did not. There's neither faith, truth, nor womanhood in me else. There's no more faith in thee than in a stewed prune. Tilly, Tally. Nay, my lord, he called you Jack, and said he would cudgel you. Yea, if he said my ring was copper. Well, I say tis copper. Dost thou be as good as thy word now? Nay, and I do, I pray God, my girdle break. Charge an honest woman with picking thy pocket? Why, thou impudent, embossed rascal, if there were anything in thy pocket but taverning reckonings, memorandums of bawdy houses, oh. and one poor penny worth of sugar candy to make thee long-winded, well, if thy pocket were enriched with any other injuries but these, I am a villain. Why, art thou not ashamed? You confess, then. You picked my pocket. Well, it appears so, but a story. Hostess, I forgive thee. Oh? Go. Get make ready breakfast. Look to thy servant. Well. Cherish thy guest. You. Love thy husband. Well, of all Nay, nay, oh. nay. Prithee, prithee, be gone. Villain, scurvy, nay, bastard. Now, hell to the news at court. For the robbery, lad. How is that answered? Oh, my sweet beef. I must still be good angel to thee. The money is paid back again. I do not like that paying back. I am good friends with my father and may do anything. Rob me the exchequer the first thing thou doest. <laughs> I have procured thee, Jack, a charge of foot in this war. I would it had been of horse. Rodolph! The horse, the horse, for thou and I have thirty miles to ride at dinner time. Aye, sir. Jack, Aye, meet sir. me tomorrow in the temple hall at two o'clock in the afternoon. There thou shalt know thy charge. The land is burning, huts first, hands on high, and either we or they must lower lie. England is in arms. From every part of the, of the kingdom, soldiers march to join the civil war. Troops drawn up in battle array by Hotspur are put at disadvantage by the sudden illness of Northumberland. 
Vidal is two weeks late recruiting his troops. Hotspur, the equally fiery Douglas, are determined to go on ahead without them. Worcester and Vernon urge delay. Throughout the night, they wrangle, pacing the dimly lighted tent. We'll fight with them tonight. It may not be. You give him an advantage. Not a whit. Why say you so? Looks he not for supply? So do we. His is certain. Ours is doubtful. Good. Cousin, be advised. Stir not tonight. Do not, my lord. Vernon, you do not counsel well. You speak it out of fear and cold heart. You mean no slander, Douglas. By my life, I hold as little counsel with weak fear as you, my lord. Or any Scot that this day lives. Let it be seen tomorrow in the battle which of us fears. Yea, or tonight. Content. Tonight, say I. Come, come, it may not be. I wonder much. Being men of such great leading as you are, that you foresee not what impediments drag back our expedition. Your Uncle Worcester's horse came but today, and now their pride and mettle is asleep. Their courage with hard labor, tame and dull. So are the horses of the enemy. The better part of ours are full of rest. The number of the king exceedeth ours. For God's sake, cousin, stay till all come in. My lord, Sir Walter Blunt. Welcome, Sir Walter Blunt. And would to God you were of our determination. The king had sent to know the nature of your griefs. And whereupon you conjure from the breast of civil peace... Such bold hostility, teaching his duteous land audacious cruelty. If that the king have any way your good deserts forgot, which he confesseth to be manifold, he bids you name your griefs, and with all speed you shall have your desires with interest, and pardon absolute for yourself and these herein misled by your suggestion. The king is kind, and well we know the king knows at what time to promise when to pay. My father and my uncle and myself did give him that same royalty he wears. I come not to hear this. Then to the point. He deposed the king. Soon after that, deprived him of his life. And in the neck of that task, the whole state disgraced me in my happy victories. And in conclusion, drove us to seek out this head of safety. And with all to pry into his title, the which we find too indirect for long continuance. Shall I return this answer to the king? Not so, Sir Walter. We'll withdraw a while. Go to the king, and let there be in pawn some surety for a safe return again. And in the morning early shall my uncle bring him our purposes. And so, farewell. I would you would accept of grace and love. And maybe so we shall. Pray God you do. The king and the Prince of Wales watch the dawn break over the field of battle. They await a messenger from the rebel camp. How bloodily the sun begins to peer above yon busky hill. The day looks pale at his distemperature. And the southern wind doth play the trumpet to his purpose. And by his hollow whistling in the leaves, foretells a tempest and a blustering day. Then with the losers let it sympathize, for nothing can seem foul to those that win. My lord of Worcester. Your majesty. An armor lord of Worcester. It is not well that you and I should meet upon such terms as now we meet. You have deceived our trust and made us doff our easy robes of peace to crush our old limbs in ungentle steel. This is not well, my lord. This is not well. Hear me, my liege. For mine own part, I could be well content to entertain the lag end of my life with quiet hours 
But I do protest. I have not sought the day of this dislike. You have not sought it? How comes it then? It pleased your majesty to turn your looks of favor from myself and all our house. And yet I must remember you, my lord. We were the first and dearest of your friends. For you, my staff of office, did I break in Richard's time and posted day and night to meet you on the way and kiss your hand. It was myself, my brother, and his son that brought you home and boldly did out dare the dangers of the time. These things indeed have you have articulate proclaimed at market crosses, read in churches, to face the garment of rebellion of pell-mell havoc and confusion. In both your armies there is many a soul shall pay full dearly for this encounter if once they join in trial. My lord of Worcester, tell your nephew, I, the Prince of Wales, do join with all the world in praise of him. I do not think a braver gentleman, more daring or more bold, is now alive to grace this latter age with noble deeds. For my part, I may speak it to my shame, I have a truant been to chivalry, and so I hear he doth account me too. Yet this before my father's majesty. I am content that he shall take the odds of his great name and estimation, and will, to save the blood on either side... Try fortune with him in a single fight. And, Prince of Wales, so dare we venture thee, albeit considerations infinite do make against it. No good was to know. We love our people well. Even those we love that are misled upon your cousin's part. Will they take the offer of our grace? Both he and they and you. Yea, every man shall be my friend again. And I'll be his. So tell your cousin and bring me word what he will do. But if he will not yield, rebuke and dread correction wait on us. They shall do that office, so be gone. Indeed. Will not now be troubled with reply. We offer fair. Take it advisedly. The wily Earl of Worcester fears that Hotspur will be influenced by the king's fair offer and determines not to repeat the message. Uncle, what news? The king will bid you battle presently. There is no seeming mercy in the king. Did you beg any? God forbid. I told him gently of our grievances. He calls us rebels, traitors. He will scourge with haughty arms this hateful name in us. The Prince of Wales stepped forth before the king and nephew challenged you to single fight. Oh, would the quarrel lay upon our heads and that no man might draw a short breath today but I and Harry Monmouth, Prince of Wales. Yet once ere night I will embrace him with a soldier's arm, that he shall shrink under my courtesy. Arm, arm with speed, and fellow soldiers, friends, better consider what you have to do than I that have not well the gift of tongue can lift your blood up with persuasion. The Lord prepare. The king comes on apace. Let each man do his best. And here draw I a sword whose temper I intend to stain with the best blood that I can meet with all in the adventure of this perilous day. Now, Esperance, proceed and set on. Sound all the lofty instruments of war, and by that music that is all embraced, for heaven to earth shall almost never shall for a second time in some courtesy. Meet at last, both bleeding, both 
weary and both determined. I mistake not, thou art Harry Monmouth. Thou speakst as if I would deny my name. My name is Harry Percy. Why, then I see a very valiant rebel of the name. I am the Prince of Wales, and think not Hotspur to share with me in glory anymore. Two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, nor can one England brook a double reign of Harry Percy and the Prince of Wales. Nor shall it, Harry, for the hour has come to end the one of us, and would to God thy name and arms were now as great as mine. I'll make it greater ere I part from thee, with all the budding honors on thy crest, I'll crop to make a garland for my head. Oh, I can no longer put thy vanity. Crush thee then! <laughs> Giant arm, 
It shall not force this lineal honor from me. This from thee will I to mine leave, as tis left to me. The prince has gone with the crown. Now the king awakens from his coma, finds himself alone, cries out, Westman! Parents! Does the king call? What would your majesty? How fair so grace? Why? Why did you leave me here alone, my lords? Where is the crown? Who took it from my pillow? When we withdrew, my liege, we left it here. Prince hath taken it hence. Go seek him out. Is he so hasty that he doth suppose my sleep, my death? Wherefore did he take away the crown? Lo, where he comes. Come hither to me, Harry. Depart the chamber. Leave us here alone. I never thought to hear you speak again. Thy wish was farther, Harry, to that thought. Thy life did manifest thou lovest me not. And thou wilt have me die short of it. Then get thee gone and dig my grave thyself. And bid the merry bells ring to thine ear that thou art crowned. Not that I am dead. For now time is come to mock at form. Harry the fifth is crowned. Affinity down royal state. All you sage counselors hence. The English court assemble now from every region. Apes of idleness. Now, neighbor confines, purge you of your scum. Have you a ruffian that will swear, drink, dance, revel the night, rob, murder, commit the oldest sins, the newest kind of ways? Be happy. He will trouble you no more. England shall double gild his treble duty. England shall give him office, honor, might, for the fifth Harry from curb license plucks the muzzle of restraint, and the wild dog shall flesh his tooth on every innocent. Oh, my poor kingdom, sick with civil blows. Oh, there will be a wilderness again, peopled with wolves, thy old inhabitants. Oh, pardon me, my liege. But for my tears, the moist impediments unto my speech, I had forestalled this dear and deep rebuke. Ere you with grief had spoke, or I had heard the cause of it so far. There is your crown. And he that wears the crown immortally, long guarded yours. God witness with me when I here came in and found no cause of breath within your majesty. How cold it struck my heart. If I do feign, oh, let me in my present wildness die and never live to show the incredulous world the noble change that I have purposed. Coming to look on you, thinking you dead, and dead almost, my liege, to think you were, I spake unto this crown as having sense. Accusing it, I put it on my head to try with it, as with an enemy that had before my face murdered my father, the quarrel of a true inheritor. But if it did infect my blood with joy, 
or swell my thoughts to any strain of pride. If any rebel or vain spirit of mine did with the least affection of a welcome give entertainment to the might of it, let God forever keep it from my head and make me as the poorest vessel is that doth with awe and terror kneel to it. Oh, my son. Come here, Harry, and sit thou by my bed. And here I think the very latest counsel that ever I shall breathe. God knows, my son, by what bypass and indirect crook ways I met this crown. And I myself know well how troublesome it sat upon my head. To thee it shall descend with better quiet. Better opinion, better confirmation, for all the soil of the achievement goes with me into the earth. Seemed in me but as an honor snatched with boisterous hand. And I had many living to upbraid my gain of it by their assistances, which daily grew to quarrel and to bloodshed, wounding supposed peace. Now my death changes the mood. For what in me was purchased falls upon thee in a more fairer sort. How came I by the crown? Oh, God forgive and grant it may with thee in true peace live. My gracious liege. <laughs> the king is dead. Long live the king. Streets of London to see young Hal, who has this day been crowned King Henry V of England. Now the procession is returning to Westcliff's Abbey. The cheers grow louder. In the front rank stands old Sir John Falstaff and his, his reputable companion. He's tipsy with wine and drunk with the prospect of his future fortune as the King's pony. Stand here by me, Master Robert Channel. Pistols stand behind me. I will make the king do you grace. I will leer upon him as he comes by, and do but mark the countenance that he will give me. God save thy grace, King Hal, my royal Hal, my royal Hal. The heavens need God and keep those royal imperfections. such a kind of man, so surfeit swelled, so old, and so profane, but being awake, 
I do despise my dream. For God doth know, so shall the world perceive, that I have turned away my former self. So will I those that kept me company. When thou dost hear I am as I have been, approach me, and thou shalt be as thou wast, the tutor and the feeder of my riots. Till then I banish thee on pain of death, as I have done the rest of my misleaders, not to come near our person by ten miles. For competence of life, I will allow you that lack of means enforce you not to evil. And as we hear you to reform yourselves, we will, according to your strengths and qualities, give you advancement. Be it your charge, your justice, to keep a form to the tenure of our word. Set on! <laughs> And so tonight, Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air open a new cycle of broadcast dramas with a radio production of their greatest stage success to date, Shakespeare's Caesar. And here is Orson Welles himself to tell you about it. The director of the Mercury Theater, the star and producer of these programs, Orson Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Julius Caesar was produced last year by the Mercury Theater without benefit of toga. Inevitably, it was as timely... Last October, as it was 1,650 years after Caesar's murder, when Shakespeare wrote it, and it is as timely today. Shakespeare's great political tragedy about the death of a dictator, which is also the personal tragedy of a great liberal, exists in all times without identification or special reference to any time. Its story is real Roman history, and its source is the Roman historian Plutarch, from the Plutarch text for the medium of radio broadcast, we have arranged a running commentary on the action of the play. No voice is better known and none could be more suitable than that of radio's outstanding news commentator, Mr. H. V. Kaltenborn.
And so tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System begins the new series of the Mercury Theater on the Air with Orson Welles' world-famous production of Julius Caesar, starring the original New York cast. Orson Welles as Brutus, Martin Gable as Cassius, George Kalouris as Antony, and Joseph Holland as Caesar. With music by the celebrated American composer Mark Blitzstein and H.V. Kaltenborn as the narrator. Mr. Kaltenborn. This is the history of a political assassination. The killing of a man who tried to make himself king. It is an account of how the murder was prepared, how it was carried out, and what happened later to the men who took part in it. When the Civil War was ended, Caesar was 55. By Pompey's death, he had made himself the most powerful man in the empire. His countrymen now made him dictator for life. Honors were conferred upon him, which seemed to exceed the limits of ordinary human ambition. A conspiracy was formed against him, headed by Cassius, one of Pompey's generals, whom Caesar had pardoned after the Civil War. The 15th of February was a national holiday, and there was a huge gathering of the people. As Caesar went through the streets, a strange voice was heard in the crowd, warning him to prepare for some great danger on the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March! Caesar paused for a moment, and then, as the voice was still, marched on between the rows of soldiers who guarded him. Caesar, my lord. I hear a tongue shriller than all the music cry, Caesar. Caesar! Ah! Who calls? Speak! Caesar is turned to hear! Beware the eyes of March! What man is that? What sayest thou to me? Speak once again! As soothsayer bids you beware the eyes of March. Set him before me. Let me see his face. Come from the throng. Look upon Caesar. He is a dreamer. Let us leave him. This was the day on which Cassius, the leader of the conspiracy, first came to Brutus, the most honored man in Rome, and tried to enlist his aid. What means this shouting, Cassius? I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. I think you would not have it so. I would not, Cassius. Yet I love him well. But wherefore do you hold me here so long? What is it you'd impart to me? I cannot tell what you and other men think of this life. But for my single self, I had as lief not be as lived to be in awe of such a thing as I myself. I was born free as Caesar, so were you. We both have fed as well. 
We can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. For once, upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Darest thou, Cassius, now leap in with me into this angry flood and swim to yonder point? Upon the word, accoutred as I was, I plunged in and bade him follow. And so indeed he did. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it with lusty sinew, throwing it aside and stemming it with hearts of controversy. But ere we could arrive the point proposed, Caesar cried, Help me, Cassius, or I sink. I, as Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear, so from the waves of Tiber did I the tired Caesar, and this man has now become a god, and we pet him in. Walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Now the games were over, and Cuscott joined them. He told them what had just taken place in the forum. Speak with me. I can't. Tell us what has chanced today. Why, there was a crown offered Caesar. And being offered him, he put it by with the back of his hand, thus. And then the people fell a shouting. Who offered him the crown? Why, Antony. Tell us the manner of it. I can as well be hanged as tell the manner of it. I saw Mark Antony offer him a crown. Yet was not a crown, lead that was one of these coronets. And as I told you, he put it by once. But for all that, to my thinking, he would fain have had it. Then he offered it to him again. And he put it by again. But to my thinking, he was very loath to lay his fingers off it. And then he offered it a third time. He put it a third time by. And still as he refused it, the rabblemen hooted and clapped their chopped hands and uttered such a deal of stinking breath because Caesar refused the crown that it almost choked Caesar. But he swooned it and fell down at it. And for mine own part, I durst not laugh for fear of opening my lips and receiving the bad air. Did Cicero say anything? Aye, he spoke Greek. To what effect? Those that understood him smiled at one another and shook their heads. But for mine own part, it was Greek to me. There was more foolery yet, if I could remember it. And so it is. For this time I will leave you. Cassius, what you have said I will consider. What you have to say I will with patience hear and find a time both meet to hear and answer such high things. Till then, my noble friend, Chew upon this. Brutus had rather be a villager than to repute himself a son of Rome under these hard conditions, as this time is like to lay upon us. Farewell, both. Let me have men about me that are fat. Sleek-headed men, and such as sleep o' nights. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. He is a great observer, and he looks quite through the deeds of men. He loves no plays as thou dost, Antony. He hears no music. Seldom he smiles, and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit that could be moved to smile at anything. Such men as he are never at heart's ease whilst they behold a greater than themselves. And therefore are they very dangerous. Fear him not, Caesar. He's not dangerous. I rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear. For always, 
I am Caesar. In the weeks before the murder, many strange prodigies and apparitions were observed. There were fearful storms over the city. The conspiracy continued to spread. By your voice. Your ear is good. Good evening, sir. Brought you Caesar home? What night is this? A very pleasing night to honest men. Are not you moved? When all the sway of earth shakes like a thing unturned? Oh, Cassius, I have seen tempests and the scolding winds have writhed in the oaks. And I have seen the ambitious ocean swell and rage and foam to be exalted with the threatening clouds. But never till tonight, never till now, did I go through a tempest dropping fire. Saw you anything more wonderful? Oh, they were drawn upon a heap of hundred ghastly women, transformed with their fear, who swore they saw men all in fire walk up and down the streets. Yesterday, a bird of night did sit, even at noonday, upon the marketplace, hooting and shrieking. When these prodigies do so conjointly meet, let not men say these are their reasons, they are natural. Indeed, it is a strange, disposed time. Whoever knew the heavens menace? Those that have known the earth so full of faults. Now could I send a name to thee, a man most like this dreadful knight. A man no mightier than thyself. Or me. Caesar, that you mean. Is it not Cassius? Indeed, they say the senators tomorrow mean to establish Caesar as a king. And he shall wear his crown by sea and land in every place save here in Italy. I know where I will wear this dagger then. Hold my hand. And I will set this foot of mine as far as who goes farthest. There's a bargain made. Come, sinner. You and I will yet ere day see Brutus at his house. Three parts of him was ours already, and the man entire upon the next encounter yields him ours. Brutus agreed to meet the conspirators in the garden of his house. The men who came that night were Cassius, Casca, Cinna, Trebonius, and Decius Brutus. It was decided that Caesar should be killed in the Senate the next day. Shall no man else be touched but only Caesar? Decius well urged. I think it is not meet Mark Antony, so well beloved of Caesar, should outlive Caesar. We shall find of him a shrewd contriver. And you know his means, if he improve them, may well stretch so far as to annoy us all. Which to prevent? Let Antony and Caesar fall together. Our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius. To cut the head off and then hack the limbs. For Antony is but a limb of Caesar. Let us be sacrificers, but not butchers, Caius. We all stand up against the spirit of Caesar, and in the spirit of men there is no blood. Oh, that we then could come by Caesar's spirit and not dismember Caesar. But alas, Caesar must bleed for it. And gentle friends, let's carve him as a dish fit for the gods. Not hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. Peace. Count the clock. The morning comes upon us. We'll leave you, Brutus. Give me your hands all over one by one. And let us swear our resolution. No, not an oath. If not the face of men, the sufferance of our souls. But time's abuse. If these be motives weak... Break off the times and every man hence to his idle bed. So let high-sighted tyranny range on till each man drop by lottery. But if these, as I'm sure they do, bear fire enough 
to kindle cowards and to steal with valor the melting spirits of women. Then, countrymen, what need we any spur but our own cause to prick us to redress? What other bond than secret Romans that have spoke the word and will not falter? And what other oath than honesty to honesty engaged? But this shall be, or we will fall for it. When Caesar entered the capital, the senators stood up to show their respect for him. Of the conspirators, some came about his chair and stood behind it, and others stood in front of him and talked to him. Casca, that stood behind him, gave him the first wound in the neck. Some say that he fought and resisted all the rest, shifting his body to avoid the blows and calling out for help, but that when he saw Brutus' knife drawn... He covered his face with his cloak and submitted, letting himself fall at the foot of the pedestal on which Pompey's statue stood, which was wetted with his blood. Et tu, Brute? Then Paul sees Liberty. Freedom! Here it is, Dad! But hence proclaim, crying about the street, peace! Freedom! How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in state unborn and accents yet unknown? How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport that now on Pompey's basis lies along no worthier than the dust? So often that shall be, so often shall none of us be called the men that gave their country liberty. What? Shall we fought? Aye, every man away. Here comes Brutus Mark Antony. Here comes Mark Antony. Welcome, Mark Antony. I know not, gentlemen, what you intend. Who else must be let blood? Who else is rank? If I myself, there is no hour so fit. I do beseech you, if you bear me hard, now whilst your purpled hands do reek and smoke, fulfill your pleasure. Live a thousand years, I shall not find myself so apt to die as here by Caesar and by you cut off the choice and master spirits of this age. Oh, Antony, beg not your death of us. What compact mean you to have with us? Will you be pricked in the number of our friends? Friends, am I with you all? And love you all. Upon this hope, that you shall give me reasons why and wherein Caesar was dangerous. Our reasons are so full of good regard that were you, Antony, the son of Caesar, you should be satisfied. That's all I seek. And am moreover suitor that I may produce his body in the marketplace and in the pulpit as becomes a friend. Speak in the order of his funeral. You shall, Mark Antony. Brutus, a word with you. You know not what you do. Do not consent that Antony speak in his funeral. Know you not how much the people may be moved by that which he will utter? By your pardon. I will myself into the pulpit first. Mark Antony. Here, take you Caesar's body. You shall not in your funeral speech blame us, but speak all good you can devise of Caesar and say you do it by our permission. Else shall you not have any hand at all about his funeral. And you shall speak in the same pulpit whereto I am going. After my speech is ended, 
Be it so. I do desire no more. Prepare the body, then. And follow us. Then Antony was left alone with the body of the man he had loved best in the world. Oh, mighty Caesar, dost thou lie so low? Are all thy conquests, glories, triumphs, spoils, shrunk to this little measure? That I did love thee, Caesar, oh, tis true. If then thy spirit look upon us now, shall it not grieve thee dearer than thy death to see thy Antony making his peace, shaking the bloody fingers of thy foes, most noble? In the presence of thy cause, had I as many eyes as thou hast wounds, weeping as fast as they stream forth thy blood, it would become me better than to close in terms of friendship with thine enemies. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. Thou art the ruins of the noblest man that ever lived in the tide of times. Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood. Over thy wounds now do I prophesy, which like dumb mouths do their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use, and dreadful objects so familiar, that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war, and Caesar's spirit, ranging for revenge, with Arte by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines, with a monarch's voice, Pray, havoc, and let's lift the dogs of war! Then Brutus came down from the capital among the crowd and made a speech to the people who listened without expressing either pleasure or resentment, but showed by their silence that they pitied Caesar and respected Brutus. Be patient till the last. Romans, countrymen, and lovers, Hear me for my cause, and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor, and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom, and awake your senses, that you may the better judge. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus's love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead? To live all free men. As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. 
as he was valiant. I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? If any speak, for him have I offended. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any speak, for him have I offended. Who is here so vile that would not love his country? If any speak, for him have I offended. I pause for a reply. None, no, no, Then none have I offended. I've done no more to Caesar than you will do to Brutus. Here comes his body, mourned by Mark Antony, who, though he had no hand in his death, shall receive the benefit of his dying. A place in the Commonwealth, as which of you shall not, good countrymen? Let me depart alone. And for my sake, stay here with Antony. Do grace to Caesar's corpse, and grace his speech, tending to Caesar's glories, which Mark Antony by our permission, is allowed to make. With this I depart. But as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. When Brutus was gone, the body of Caesar was brought out into the forum, all mangled with wounds. And Antony made a funeral oration to the people in praise of Caesar. And finding them moved by his speech, he unfolded the bloody garment of Caesar and showed them in how many places it was pierced and the number of his wounds. He also told them of Caesar's will, in which it was found that he had left a considerable legacy of money to each one of the Roman citizens. For Brutus' sake, I am beholding to you. Does he say of Brutus? He says for Brutus' sake, he finds himself Brutus. beholding to us all. Best he speak no harm of Brutus. Yeah. Neither was entirely... They are Romans right of Neither was entirely... You gentle Romans. Then, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Let us hear what Antony can say. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. And it was so. It was a grievous fault. And grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all, all honorable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? <laughs> Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. 
You all did see that on the Lupercal I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yes, Brutus says he was ambitious, I'm sure. He is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to say what I do know. You all did love him once. Not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. Methinks there is much reason in his sayings. If thou consider rightly of the matter, Caesar has had great wrong. I fear there were the worst by his place. Mark, he, he would not take the crown. He would not take the crown. But it certainly was not ambition. Yes, he found He begins again to speak. But yesterday, the word of Caesar might have stood against the world. Now lies he there. And none so poor to do him reverence. Oh, masters, if I were disposed to stir your hearts and minds to mutiny and rage, I should do Brutus wrong and Cassius wrong, who, you all know, are honorable men. I will not do them wrong. I'd rather choose to wrong the dead, to wrong myself and you, than I will wrong such honorable men. But here's a parchment with the seal of Caesar. I found it in his closet. Is his will. Let but the commons hear this testament, which, pardon me, I do not mean to read. And they would go and kiss dead Caesar's wounds and dip their napkins in his sacred blood. Yea, beg a hair of him for memory, and dying, mention it within their wills, bequeathing it as a rich legacy unto their issue. I must not read it. Not me, you know how Peter loved you. You're not wood, you're not stones, but men. And being men, hearing the will of Caesar, it would inflame you, it would make you mad. Yes, it's good you know not that you are his heirs. Or if you should, or what would come of it? Let's hear the will. The will. Will you be patient? I have all shot myself to tell you of it. I fear I wrong the honorable men whose man. daggers have kept Caesar. I do You will compel me then to read the will. And make a ring about the corpse of Caesar. And let me show you him that made the will. Shall I descend? Will you give me leave? Come down. Descend. You shall have leave. Room for that. Most noble I... Silence! The ring. Stand round. Stand from the hearse. Stand back. Room, Stand from the room for instance. Stand back. If you have tears, prepare to shed them now. You all don't know this mantle. I remember the first time ever Caesar put it on. It was on a summer's evening in his tent, that day he overcame the Nervii. Look, in this place ran Cassius' dagger through. See what a rent the envious Casca made. 
Through this, the well-beloved Brutus stabbed, and as he plucked his cursed steel away, mark how the blood of Caesar followed it as rushing out of doors to be resolved if Brutus so unkindly knocked or no. For Brutus, as you know, was Caesar's angel. This was the most unkindest cut of all. For when the noble Caesar saw him stab, ingratitude more strong than traitor's arms quite vanquished him, then burst his mighty heart, and in his mantle, muffling up his face, even at the base of Pompey's statue, which all the while ran blood. Great Caesar fell. Oh, what a fall was there, my countrymen, then I and you and all of us fell down whilst bloody treason flourished over us. Oh, now you weep, and I perceive you feel the dint of pity. These are gracious drops, kind souls. What? Weep you? When you but behold our Caesar's vesture wounded. Look you here. Here is himself. Mud as you see with traitor. <laughs> oh, villain. Oh, traitor. Revenge. 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 We'll hear him. We'll follow him. We'll die. Good friends, sweet friends, let me not stir you up to such a sudden flood of mutiny. They that have done this deed are honorable. What private griefs they have, alas, I know not, that made them do it. They are wise and honorable, and will no doubt with reason answer you. I come not, friends, to steal away your heart. I am no orator, as Brutus is. But as you know me all, a plain, blunt man that loved my friend, and that they know full well that gave me public leave to speak of him. For I have neither wit, nor words, nor worth, action, nor utterance, nor the powers of speech to stir men's blood. I only speak right on. Tell you that which you yourselves do know. Show you sweet Caesar's wounds, poor, poor, dumb mouths, and bid them speak for me. But were I Brutus, and Brutus Antony, there were an Antony would ruffle up your spirit. And put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise and mutiny. Will mutiny will burn the house of Brutus? About seek fire, kill slay, go fetch fire. Why, friends, you go to do you know not what. Wherein hath Caesar thus deserved your love? Alas, you know not. I must tell you then, you have forgot the will I told you of. Here's the will, and under Caesar's seal, he gives to every several man, to every Roman citizen, seventy-five dragmen! <laughs> He has left all his walks, his private arbors, and you planted orchards on this tight fiber. He has left them you and your heirs forever. Common pleasures to walk abroad and recreate yourselves. Here was a Caesar. When comes such another? Now let it work. Mischief, thou art afoot. 
Take thou what cost thou wilt. In the streets, there was nothing to be seen but confusion. Some cried out to kill the murderers. Others tore away the benches and tables out of the shops round about, and heaping them all together, built a great funeral pyre. On this they set the corpse of Caesar and set fire to it. Then they took brands from the pile. Some of them ran to the houses of the conspirators. Others ran up and down the streets to find out the men who had killed Caesar and tear them to pieces. That night Brutus, having said farewell to Portia his wife, left the city. In the months that followed, the empire was divided into two factions, some going over to Brutus and Cassius, others to Antony and Octavius. Two years after Caesar's murder, the armies of the two factions came face to face on the plains of Philippi. That night, Brutus sent for Cassius to come to his tent. There had been dissension between them lately. There was talk of corruption in Cassius' army, and Cassius himself was not above suspicion. me wrong. Wrong I, mine enemies, and if not so, how should I wrong a brother? That you have wronged me doth appear in this. You have condemned and noted Lucius Pella for taking bribes here of the Sardians, wherein my letters, praying on his side because I knew the man, were slighted off. You wronged yourself to write in such a case. In such a time as this, it is not meet that every nice offense should bear his coming. Let me tell you, Cassius, you yourself are much condemned to have an itching palm to sell and march your officers for gold to undeserved. I, an itching palm. You know that your Brutus that speaks this, or by the gods this speech will else your last. The name of Cassius honors this corruption and chastisement that therefore hide his head. Chastisement! Remember, march! The Ides of March. Remember? Did not great Julius bleed for justice' sake? What villain touched his body that did stab, and not for justice? What? Shall one of us that struck the foremost man of all this world... But for supporting robbers, shall we now contaminate our fingers with base bribes and sell the mighty space of our large honors for so much thrash as may be grasped thus? I'd rather be a dog and bathe the moon than such a Roman. Brutus, bait not me, I'll not endure it. You forget yourself to head me in. I am a soldier, I, older in practice. Abler than yourself to make conditions. Go to, you are not Cassius. I am. I say, you are not. Hurt me no more, I shall forget myself. Tempt me no farther. Away, slight man. This possible must I endure all this? All this? I'm more. Wretch, your proud heart break. Must I observe you? Must I stand and crouch under your testy humor? By the gods, you shall digest the venom of your spleen, though it do split you. From this day forth, I'll use you for my mirth. Yea, for my laughter, when you are waspish. It come to this. You say you are a better soldier. Let it appear so. Make your vaunting true, and it shall please me well. For mine own part, I shall be glad to learn of noblemen. You wrung me every way. You wrung me, Brutus. 
I said an elder soldier, not a better. Did I say better? If you did, I care not. When Caesar lived, he durst not thus have moved peace, me. Peace, peace. You durst not so have tempted him. I durst No. Not. What durst not tempt him? Your life you durst not. Do not presume too much upon my love. I may do that. I shall be sorry for You have done that. You should be sorry for There is no terror, Cassius, in your threats. For I am armed so strong in honesty that they pass me by as the idle wind, which I respect not. I did send you for certain sums of gold which you denied me. For I can raise no money by vile means. By heaven, I'd rather coin my heart and drop my blood for drachmas than to wring from the hard hands of peasants their vile trash by any indirection. I did send you for gold to pay my legions which you denied me. Was that done by Cassius? I denied you not. You did! I did not! He was but a fool that brought my answer back. Brutus hath rived my heart. A friend should bear his friend's infirmities. But Brutus makes mine greater than they are. I do not till you practice them on me. You love me not. I do not like your faults. A friendly eye could never see such faults. Well, flatterers would not, though he did appear as huge as high Olympus. Come, Antony and young Octavius, come. Revenge yourselves alone on Cassius, for Cassius is a weary of a world. Hated by one he loves. Braved by his brother, checked like a bondman. All his faults observed. Set in a notebook, learned and conned by rote to cast into my teeth. Ah. I could weep my spirit from mine eyes. There's my dagger. I that denied thee gold will give my heart. Strike as thou didst at Caesar. For I know when thou didst hate him worst. Thou lovest him better than ever thou lovest Cassius. Sheathe your dagger. Be angry when you will. It shall have scope. Do what you will. Dishonor shall be humor. Hath Cassius lived to be but mirth and laughter to his Brutus, when grief and blood ill-tempered vexeth him? I was ill-tempered, too. Do you confess so much? Give me your hand. And my heart, too. I did not think you could have been so angry. <laughs> Cassius. I'm sick of many griefs. Of your philosophy, you make no use if you give place to accidental evil. Portia is dead. Portia? She's dead. Upon what sickness? Impatient of my absence and grief that young Octavius with Mark Antony made themselves so strong. For with her death, her tidings came. With this, she fell distracted. And died so? Even so. Deep of night has crept upon our talk. There's no more to say. No more. Good night. Early tomorrow will we rise and hence. Noble, noble Cassius. Good night. And good repose. Brutus resolved to meet the enemy on the plain of Philippi. Never had two such large Roman armies come together to engage each other. As soon as it was morning, the signal of battle, the scarlet coat, 
was sent out in Brutus and Cassius camps, and the two friends met for the last time in the middle space between their two armies. Now, most noble brother, if we do lose this battle, then is this the very last time that we shall speak together? You are contented to be led in triumph through the streets of Rome? No, Cassius, no. Think not, thou noble Roman, that ever Brutus will go bound to Rome. He bears to greater mind. But this same day must end that work the Ides of March begun. And whether we shall meet again, I know not. Therefore, our everlasting farewell take. Forever and forever farewell, Cassius. If we do meet again, why, we shall smile. If not, why, then this parting was well made. Forever and forever farewell, Brutus. If we do meet again, we'll smile indeed. If not, why then tis true, this parting was well made. Why then meet on? Ah, oh, that a man might know the end of this day's business ere it come. But it suffices that the day will end. And then the end is known. Come all away! In the beginning, the tide of battle was with Brutus, but soon Cassius saw his whole army begin to give way. When he found that he could not even keep his own personal guard together, Cassius retired to an empty tent, taking along with him only Pindarus, one of his freemen, and pulling his cloak over his head, he made his neck bare and held it forth to Pindarus, commanding him to strike. Cassius' head was found severed from his body, and beside it was found the same knife with which he had stabbed Caesar. Sometime later, Brutus, returning from the pursuit, wondered that he could not see Cassius' tent afar off, standing high as it was wont, and appearing above the rest of the camp. Then, for the first time, he suspected the defeat of Cassius and made haste to him. He heard nothing of his death, until he came to the camp. Where? Where, Masala, does his body lie? He is slain. The last of all the Romans. Fare thee well. It is impossible that ever Rome should breed thy fellow. Friends, I owe more tears to this dead man and you shall see me pay. I shall find time, Cassius. Shall find time. Oh, Julius Caesar. Thou art mighty yet. Thy spirit walks abroad and turns our swords in our own proper entrails. Julius, so the sword fight. But my lord, he came not back. He is ordained. 
or slain. Slaying is the word. It is a deed in fashion. Come hither, good Volumnius. Lift a word. What says, my lord? Why, this, Volumnius. The ghost of Caesar hath appeared to me two several times by night at Sardis once, and this last night here in Philippi Fields. I know my hour is come. Not so, my lord. Nay, I am sure it is, Volumnius. Thou knowest that we two went to school together. Even for that our love of old, I pray thee, hold thou my sword hilts whilst I run on it. That's not an office for a friend, my lord. Fly, fly, my lord. There is no carrying here. Farewell to you, and you, and you, Volumnius. Strato, thou hast been all this while asleep. Farewell to thee too, Strato. Countryman, my heart doth joy. But yet in all my life I found no man but he was true to me. I shall have glory by this losing day. More than Octavius and Mark Antony by this vile conquest shall attain unto. So fare you well at once. For Brutus's tongue hath almost ended his life's history. Night hangs upon mine eyes. My bones would rest, but have but labored to attain this hour. Fly, my lord, fly! Hence, I will follow. I pray thee straight, O stay thou by thy lord. Not a fellow of a good respect, thy life hath had some smatch of honor in it. Hold then my sword. Turn away thy face while I do run upon it. Wilt thou straight, O? Give me your hand first. Fare you well, my lord. Farewell. Good Strato. Caesar. Now be still. I killed not thee with half so good a will. Brutus' dead body was found by Antony who commanded the richest purple mantle that he had to be thrown over it. Then, before the assembled armies, he spoke over the body of his enemy. This was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators, save only he, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. He, only in a general honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. His life was gentle, and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. <laughs> 